Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, the nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side B of Gen X Covers, where we curate a mixtape featuring Gen X artists covering classic tunes. Welcome back. Welcome back. Well, at the end of the last episode, um, two weeks ago, we talked about a letter that we received from a listener about the Electric Mayhem band from the Muppets. Yes. And it was it was just so well-crafted, I decided I, want, I wanted to read that, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Absolutely. So this is, uh, this is from um, somebody by the name of uh, David Kowalski. So David Kowalski writes, Hey guys, enjoying the 1973 mixtape show. Thank you very much. Um, I wasn't born then. My parents were married that year. And damn, there was some great music in there. I agree, right? Yeah. I wanted to talk briefly about the track Freebird here in Australia where I live. That song has not been thrashed to death by commercial radio at all. In fact, the first time I heard it was in 1994 in an obscure little film that not too many people saw called Forrest Gump. I like this guy's... <laughs> this. I like his style here. Yeah. Uh, it was about some guy or something, dot, dot, dot. Anyway, uh, there's a scene where Jenny almost slips off the balcony of the tune of Freebird, and the solos get more hectic in the drama, and the screen ramps up. Uh, I've loved the track ever since, but very few people know about the song over there. Interesting. Over yeah. In Australia. I thought I thought Freebird was overplayed everywhere. Yeah. The song that pretty much is the bane of the existence of the Australian pub bands is a song um, about a returned Vietnam vet called uh, K Son. I, I Probably in Vietnamese. I don't, I, I'm awful with pronunciation. By a Nazi band called Cold Chisel. Anyway, the Electric Mayhem. I'm a huge Bobbitts fan, he says. Uh, there was once a website called electricmayhem.net. You probably need the, the Wayback Machine to find it. Have you tried the Wayback Machine? No, I haven't. It, 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 they've archived all these old websites. It's really? really cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it did, in fact, prove you correct that Dr. Teeth is inspired by Dr. John and Elton John. Janice is a hybrid of Janice Joplin and Joni Mitchell. Floyd is pink on purpose. Pink Floyd, obviously. Yeah, not, maybe it wasn't as obvious yeah. to me because I didn't kept, I never pick up it. on that. And his last name is actually Pepper, based on the idea of uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And his costume looks a lot like the one Hendrix used to wear circa 1967. Zoot, based on the Zoot Sims, the sax player. Uh, animals, definitely Keith Moon and the Red Hair is inspired by Ginger Baker, which now makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. The drummer from Cream. If you watch the uh, documentary uh, Beware of Mr. Baker, you'll see that our man Ginger is a loose cannon with a fiery temper. Interesting. Um, He says, I once did an assignment in a university music class that required us to compare and contrast two music videos. He did uh, The Who's uh, Live at the Isle of Wight in 1970 doing Young Man's Blues, which Keith Moon is going nuts, compared with the Electric Mayhem doing Can You Picture That? Classic uh, from the Muppet movie. Um, I got a high distinction grade on it. 
So cheers, guys. He says, thank you very much, David, for reaching out from down under and uh, giving us a, a little more trivia. So we appreciate that. Yeah. No, I, I loved the email when it came in. It was definitely one of the coolest we've ever received. Yep. So Yep. So thank you very much. And the humor uh, regarding Forrest Gump was, it was <laughs> pretty good. genius. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but no, it felt good. We, we got the two band members correct. Yeah, we were close. I, I really, I'm kind of ashamed of myself that I never picked up on Floyd being pink, as he said, it should have been obvious. Yeah, I never thought of I, that. I never made that connection. And Ginger Baker, that makes sense, too. Yeah, completely. Um, now, con- please, continue to, to send chorus. That's the best part of what we do, mm-hmm. It's just having had the opportunity to hear from so many people that, you know, from all walks of life from around the world, we, we love it. So, if you ever have anything to say, even if it's just being critical of our performance, please, we, we love, love the conversation, so... All right, well, side B of covers. Remember, we are doing uh, Gen X artists doing covers for music that came before the Gen X era. And, for the, uh, well, for the most part. For the most part. So, yeah. some, there's some overlap. There yeah. is some overlap, but... Right. Yeah, but mostly songs from 50s, 60s, and, and 70s. Right? Yep. yep, you got it. All right, I'm up first, right? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Uh, my first pick for side B is... Oh, wow, this is a classic. So... <clears throat> um, Patti Smith, 1975, her album Horses, which, you know, when you talk about albums that were just monumental records um, that inspired other artists, this one is on that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, not incredibly commercial. A lot of casual fans may not know Patti Smith's Horses, but uh, wow, it is, as far as alternative music goes, in fact, this album, um, a lot of rock critics say this is the very first actual punk record. Yeah, I've, I've read that in yeah. a number of yeah. reviews, yeah. The the song is uh, it opens the record. It's Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Um, so basically, what she does here and what the band um, used to do uh, live, they they would just play a, a chord progression, and then Patty would take a poem that she had written and she would kind of do a spoken word to that chord progression. But then the chord progression would then kind of lend itself to some classic song, and in this case, it was uh, Them's Gloria. Mm-hmm. And so they played this live enough that finally they went into the studio and they, and they recorded it live in the studio um, so they could get a good version of, of kind of the morphine of her poem into this song, and it's just masterful. number of punk and post-punk artists that cite this record is is too long to list here, okay? But I'll just say Michael Stipe uh, from R.E.M. said, says it best here, I bought the record in high school and it, quote, tore my limbs off and put them back together in a whole different order, end quote. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's mighty praise, especially coming from Stipe. Right, that's, right. 
Wow. And we know all sorts of other alternative bands um, have, have covered her, her, her music. Uh, you two did a version of um, Walking Barefoot. Um, there's, just, there's just a ton. Again, too many to name. Not even going to go down that road. Um, the album version was produced by Velvet Underground alum John Cale. I just mentioned him um, on side A. Uh, it was recorded live in the studio, as I mentioned. And if, uh, if you're listening to the song for the first time, I really recommend that you put on headphones, you crank the volume, close your eyes for the duration of the song because it's magic stuff. Like if, if, if you enjoy those live, Springsteen does this a lot. A lot of artists do this a lot. Well, they'll, they'll maybe work a cover song into their song right? Um, or they'll just kind of organically start to jam and it develops into something. And that, that's what this, this feels like to me. Um, it just, it starts it's very, very slow, very, very, um, you know, what, what's I'm looking for, just kind of prayerful almost at the very beginning. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's kind of prayerful. Yeah, and it just slowly builds and slowly builds and starts to get louder and louder and louder. And boy, then she just attacks the them song, like I've never heard it before. Just great stuff. What, what do you think? Because you're you're more of a an oldies guy than I am. Yeah, I, well, I um, I mean it's it. She incorporates. It's not a direct cover, of course. Um, but it. I don't know. The magic for me is not the cover of Gloria. It's it's just. She's so, she's so commanding, you know. I when you when you listen and and just hear the chord progression helps, but there's something about her delivery that is just so. What's the word I'm looking for? I mean, she's she's just. It's hard to put into words. It, it really is. And this is the problem we have on this show because a lot of times you just can't describe music. That's the point. That it's almost futile to describe music when you can just listen to it. Right. And you know, no two people. It's subjective. Right. So of course. you know, anything that we say could readily you know be contradicted by anyone who doesn't find that connection right. to the music. But it's yeah, she's just so authoritative authoritarian i guess i mean it just she's command she she commands she, this stage. yes i mean she is like she's she's almost you know she she's so you're going to have to edit this because <laughs> it's, it's, fine, like, it's fine i am um, it, it proves the point it's hard yeah, to talk about yeah. good music sometimes oh yeah i i can't even find the word I, she's just so she's so powerful yeah and she's so there there's so much force in what she does that you almost she she brings you in and you almost surrender yourself. That's good yeah. to the delivery. I, I mean, it, it's it's you feel powerless, but yet she empowers you at, yeah. at the same time. It's it, how you express that right. in words. I, I don't know, but it's she's just she's a masterful poet, and she's just she does an amazing thing with with how she, you know, just feeds the. The lyrics to to the to the listener it, it's unlike anything I've ever heard elsewhere. So Springsteen was so uh, impressed by this record, he actually kind of started second guessing his choice of genre. Um, oh, really? He really he, yeah. And so you know, when we talk about music, um, different forms of punk, of course, right? Ramones have their brand, Six Pistols, Clash, the, the obvious ones, right? But um, <clears throat> you know, her brand of punk is a little bit different, and Springsteen really related to this record. And so I think I've mentioned this before. Darkness on the Edge of Town is this punk record. It's not truly a punk record, but after Born to Run, when he had, of course, how many, spent a year in the studio just on that song alone, right? When he just massaged and, and, and worked that album to what it is, and it's, it's very much a wall of sound type of production. 
the next album, of course, there were about two or three years there where he was waiting out um, the record company and some stuff. But when he finally puts out his next record, Darkness in the Inter Town, it, it is all stripped down. The lyrics are all centered around kind of the failed American dream. That's when it really starts to kind of come into yeah. to Springsteen's vocabulary. And um, you can hear it. You can hear with the stripped down version of that entire record why he was inspired by, by Patti Smith. In fact, one of the outtakes, or from, you know, he wrote a lot of music prior to that record. And one of the ones that didn't make Darkness is Until the Night. And that, of course, was given to Patti Smith. He didn't even finish it, but he sent it to her. And, uh, or because of the night. I said Until the Night. Because of the night. And so when Patti Smith heard it, um, she, she finished writing the song and then, of course, became a big hit for her. So yeah. it's, just, it's just strange how one album can affect different genres and different artists and kind of be a watershed moment in rock history. And I really think this is one of them here. You know, I'm, I'm looking at critical response to horses uh, just to see how other people described her work. Uh, Rolling Stone says it beautifully. Patti Smith is a rock and roll shaman mm. and she needs music as shamans have always needed the cadence of their chanting nice and that's I, I would not have come up with those words that's two good quotes about a record you, know, you, you can you know, um, inspire those types of quotes you're doing something special yeah um, yeah it's it's just if you've never listened to horses I mean you 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 want to listen to this album front to back yep. it, it's just it it really is unlike anything else you're going to you're ever going to hear. I mean, yeah. it's just... And it wasn't necessarily commercial back then. Oh, um, no, it wasn't commercial at all. Well, no, I know. I mean, people bought it. Oh, well, sure. But, but it, yeah. it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't... I I, I would, I'm, of course, I wasn't, I was alive in 75, but I was, what, three. So I don't know if it was something that the average Joe was aware of or if it was just, you know, uh, music files and, and people that kind of got into, of course, musicians all, all knew it. Right. By the way, um, this might be as a best time to bring it up than any. Um, I, I learned something while I was on vacation that Yacht Rock is not what we think it is. Then what is it? Okay, so I always assumed, and you always assumed. I thought it was mellow 70s. Well, yeah, it's fine, but I mean the, the term Yacht Rock does oh, not the, refer oh, to. The term, okay. We always kind of assumed, right, that it was just this play on Yachts and kind of white guys on a yacht and kind of this easygoing seventies, you know, classic rock. Right, the, the vibe. Songs to listen to when you're hanging out on a yacht. Yes, totally not what the guy, whoever, some critic termed. I don't remember who it was now. Totally not what he meant. Okay. He meant yacht rock in terms of a yacht is a very expensive boat. Okay. Right. Artists like Steely Dan and Toto, they w went into the studio and spent millions of dollars, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of just layering and building. And the album was way more expensive than record than, let's say, the Ramones <laughs> doing Rocket to Russia. Oh, well, well, yeah, yeah. And so that's why he turned this period in rock, um, Yacht Rock, because it was so expensive to make because these artists, it was a time when the record company would basically just give you the key to the studio and would pay the bills and just let you continue to and then Steely Dan's a perfect example which is why you hear like Steely Dan isn't something I always thought it was a little bit odd that they were considered yet rock because it's not you know doesn't come to, Christopher Cross is what I think well, of when you think uh, of certainly. that definition of, of course he's on Yacht Rock a lot too as well but when you consider the definition that the uh, uh, the, the critic Matt Steely Dan's a perfect example because of all the money and time they took to engineer this perfect record Toto's a good example because there are a bunch of artists who were session musicians right and they realized hey we can get together and make a hit and take all the money for ourselves right hmm. now that makes sense to me it does although I I feel like the masses define it today as we do 
Oh, it's definitely changed since the yeah. I mean, it's, it's since the original coining of the term. Right. I, th- yeah. I think it's people it, must understood it, and then they added stuff that maybe isn't necessarily what he intended. Right. Yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking, you know, when when you listen to the format, you know, of 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 yacht rock stations, right. like I think of Sirius XM, yacht rock. You know, it's it's certainly I don't know. I still see a bunch of very elite, you know. Very privileged white people on a yacht listening. To no, this, yeah, <laughs> to the there's music. definitely that crossover. Yeah. Um, but that's wild. I, I had no idea that was what was originally well, meant. And think about it. Prior to this time, right? Most most music was recorded live in the studio. You, you had a little bit of overdubbing, but most of it was you just recorded the song until you got it right. Yeah, and yeah. they could probably lift things and edit things too. But um, once the studio, we mentioned going to 24 um, tracks instead of four about mm-hmm. about this time, right? Um, now you had you could you could do so much more twenty four tracks right you could have so many more um, musical elements to it and it really allowed people just to kind of create on a level that they you know had, hadn't created before and so that that, that kind of makes sense to me now yeah uh, when in fact um, I just read an article about uh, Boston and of course I don't remember his name now because I can't remember anything I'm old but you know Boston is banned but Boston is like 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 Billy Corgan with Smashing Pumpkins it's really just you know the Boston guy I can't remember his name who built his own home studio and spent years perfecting that first Boston album. Actually, all of their records. There's a reason they only have three or four records because they spend like 10 years, he spends 10 years just crafting it, honing it, getting it perfect, like Springsteen did with Born to Run. Um, and so on that definition, Born to Run would be Yacht Rock because it was it was an album that took a lot of time to craft and mm-hmm. it kind of grew during the recording process, right? Anyway. Boston. Well, lead vocalist for Boston is Brad Delp. Okay, there we go. That's who you mean is Delp. There we Delp. go. Yeah. Um, I believe it's Delp. Yeah. I don't know my Boston. He well. and Schultz, I think, were the original two signed with the label. But, um, yeah, no, he, Boston. You want to talk about rock snob. We need to do a rock, rock hall snobs right. yeah. episode. But see, again, yeah. that, you don't think Boston as being not rock, but by the original definition, that's exactly what they mean. Yeah. No, that, that would make sense. But, yeah, you're not going to hear more than a feeling come on a yacht rock right. station so, so it, it i just thought it was interesting because yeah now where'd you where'd you pick up on this where'd you where'd you find it just a buddy of mine really me, yeah 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 we were just talking about something and he had, he had read that and he goes you know yacht rock was not originally meant to be what it is today and huh. when he explained it i'm like wow that makes perfect sense that's yeah. very cool yeah, yeah i i would not have known that i just always assumed you know the obvious um that, no that's very cool and yeah but that definition still a dan Right, makes total sense. Oh, yeah. without question. All right, you're up. Okay, well, I'm going to start today uh, today's episode with the big one. Um, if you know that we're doing, you know, Gen X artists uh, and you know they're they're the the great covers of, of Gen X, uh, then chances are very good you were expecting this one to to show up, and it shows up now. I'm talking about. A Whitney Houston number comes from the Bodyguard original soundtrack from 1992, originally written and recorded by Dolly Parton in 1974. I will always love you. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way.
Probably the best known cover of the last 30 years, um, without question. Yeah, and, and Dolly Parton, nothing, take nothing away from her. Oh, She's no. incredible yeah. vocally. But obviously Whitney Houston was a once-in-a-generation talent yes. vocally. And of all of the songs that she recorded, whether she co-wrote or a lot of them were you know, written by other songwriters, um, this one showed, this and the national anthem that she did for the Super oh, Bowl. Oh, well, yeah. Those two tracks just... If you just listen to those two, you can see the range of this woman and mm-hmm. what she was able to do, how gifted she was. Yeah. I um you know, and I almost didn't go with I will always love you. I, I almost went with saving all my love for you, in part because I, I thought, you know, most of our listeners may not know that that was a cover. Right. You know, surprise, it it was. But I, I felt I felt like I'd be cheating the listeners because this is the one This is the peak. This, this is, is Whitney yeah. Houston's peak. This is this is the one that deserves to be on the episode this whole so. this whole record you just hear of all she was always obviously a very talented singer right. on that first record but a lot of i think they wasted a lot of her talent too with some of the songs they're fun songs i yeah. want to dance with somebody or whatever but it really didn't have an opportunity to show off her vocal range but uh the, the tracks on the bodyguard surely did yeah okay so let, let's start at the end this, this is going to take a while because i'm going to give credit to both dolly and whitney here um First of all, this is not a love song in the conventional sense, okay? Dolly Parton wrote it for a close friend. It was not a romantic relationship. Uh, In 1967, she was invited by the country star Porter Wagner to co-host his TV show, where they became very famous for their duets. Uh, In time, though, her enormous talent eclipsed that of her mentor, and she moved on to greener pastures. Uh, She wrote this song for him to show her appreciation for the time they had worked together. So leaving Wagner wasn't easy. I mean, he thought Parton was making a mistake and felt she was being disloyal. And Parton played the song to Wagner the morning after she wrote it as her way of letting him know that her mind was made up and to express how she felt about him. And apparently it got the message across. Parton said that Wagner was in tears when she finished and he called it the prettiest song he had ever heard. So this all went down in 1973. And the following year, Parton and Wagner formally announced their split after a seven-year partnership. And Parton said, I I wrote that song to say, here's how I feel. I will always love you, but I have to go. Okay? This was the second of five consecutive number one country hits that Parton had after establishing herself as a solo artist. Parton later recorded a second version of this song. Uh, It was for the 1982 film The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Uh, which she started along with Burt Reynolds. Uh, the second version not only became a number one country hit, just like the first version did, uh, but it also became a crossover hit, reaching number 53 on the Hot 100. You know, it's the second time we've talked about the best little whorehouse in Texas on this podcast. Oh, yeah, LaGrange. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when we ZZ Top. <laughs> anyway, uh, go ahead. Yeah, the Chicken Ranch. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, after this song was released, Elvis Presley wanted to cover it. And Parton was interested, but Presley's handlers insisted that he be given a share of the publishing rights, if he recorded it, which was a common demand at the time from from Presley. Parton held her ground, and she said it was a very difficult decision, but one that worked out very well for her, since the publishing rights she would have relinquished turned out to be substantial in about 30 years' time, for obvious reasons. Right. Okay. Uh, My song, she said, 
were what I was leaving for my family and I wouldn't give them up, she told Mojo in 2004. People said I was stupid. It was Elvis, and I had cried all night. I would have killed to hear Elvis sing it. But eventually, when Whitney recorded it, I was very glad that I had held out. Parton was vindicated, of course, when Houston's cover earned her over $6 million. And in 2008, Parton told Observer Music Monthly, I think stories like that are the reason why younger female artists sometimes say I've influenced them. Imagine that. I mean, if I remember correctly, I might be wrong. I think I read that she wrote this song in a fairly fast period of time. Yeah, yeah, it was... Like, she sat down and wrote it, like, within an hour, basically. Yeah, it was one night and done, yeah. Imagine $6 million for one hour of work. Yeah, it's pretty... It's astronomical, really. Um, Houston's version, okay, was was featured in the movie The Bodyguard. I've never seen The Bodyguard. What? My wife does that to me, too. She always does that. Were you alive in the 90s? I was alive. I've never seen... The bodyguard. I, I've there have been times like my wife keeps insisting I must see yes. this, and and I have every intention to. I've just never sat down, and whenever I'm ready, my you know Gail's off doing whatever, and she's told me I'm not allowed to watch it unless she's watching it with me. And <laughs> so, you know how I feel about Kevin Costner. He's he's one of the actors I don't necessarily care for. Personally, I think he's a nice guy. I, I don't know, but I mean from what I've read, it's nothing against his character. I just don't like his acting. Hmm. I, I'm just not a fan of Kevin Coffin. Really? There, there are a few movies where I think he shines in, and this is one of them. Okay. I, I've always liked Kyle. He's still not a great actor, but but it works well, in this movie. Yeah. Because he plays the Secret Service agent that's kind of, you know, Secret Service agents aren't supposed to show a lot of emotion. Right. And they're yeah. supposed to be very, very guarded, and that's Kevin Costner, so. Okay. Um, yeah, no, Gail has been on me to watch this for years, but I, I still have not done it. Probably the only Gen Xer alive that is not. Um but yeah, Houston's version was featured in the movie, uh, which Houston starred in with Costner, as you just said. Uh, Houston played a famous singer, I guess, Costner, her bodyguard. That much everybody knows, whether you've seen the movie or not. Of course, they fall in love. It was Costner who picked the song for the movie. Whitney originally intended to cover Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted as the lead single from The Bodyguard. However, she found out that the song had been used just one year earlier in the 1991 film Fried Green Tomatoes, which I also have never seen. Um, as an aside, have you seen that one? I haven't. No. Okay. Uh, All right. So I'm not going to get lectured. Kathy for Bates, it. I think. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to get lectured. Sally Fields is yep, in it. Yeah. Dolly, yep, I believe, yep. is in it. Um, Costner suggested that uh, Whitney record Dolly's country hit instead. Houston loved the choice, but Clive Davis, the Arista Records boss who acted as mentor for the singer throughout her career, was puzzled by the selection. Costner, who also produced the film, though, knew it would be perfect for the picture, and and he stuck to his guns. He, He assured Davis that this would be a very important song to the movie. Costner told Davis that he didn't care, he didn't care if if it was ever on the radio. It was the movie that mattered. Costner also insisted that Whitney begin the song a cappella. He said that by singing it a cappella, it would show a measure of how much she loved Costner's character that she sings without music. So Parton's original version, okay, was a country ballad. Houston's recording had more lavish production. It became a pop, soul, and adult contemporary hit. The tremendous crossover appeal meant that radio stations of many different formats played the song. Um, it, it gave it a huge audience, right? It ended up being a groundbreaker, but it was a big risk, as there wasn't much crossover between the country and R&B audiences. Not since Ray Charles uh, in the 1950s had there really been a, an African-American presence on the country charts. 
Um, and this is before, you know, Darius Rucker and, right. and like. Um, truth be told, the musical side of Whitney's camp was very unsure about this little country song. And while she was crushing the convention that a soul singer shouldn't do country, uh, Houston also proved that her fans would accept her in an on-screen interracial romance, uh, which she had with Costner in the movie. I guess in the film, the race issue is never mentioned. Correct. Uh, Houston, uh, her, her cover stayed at number one for 14 weeks, which at the time was the record. She held the record. In 95, I guess this record was broken by One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. I, I can't say I'm familiar with that song. Um, I know Mariah, but I don't know that one. Which held the top spot for 16 weeks. It finally broke Whitney's record. I Will Always Love You does still hold the record for the most weeks at number one for a song that first appeared on a soundtrack, though. Probably always will. Uh, Houston performed this at the Grammys in 93, where it won Record of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. The song also won the 92 Soul Train Music Award for R&B Song of the Year. It did not, however, win an Oscar, since it was not eligible for the Best Original Song Award. That award can only go to songs that are written specifically for a film, of course. According to Costner, he really wanted Whitney Houston to star in The Bodyguard with him, so much so that he postponed shooting it for a year until she was available. Costner was one of the few people in Hollywood who could convince a movie studio to do this. He had a whole lot of sway after his movie Dances with Wolves won the Oscar for Best Picture in 91. If you remember 91, he swept the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. Dances with Wolves won Yeah, everything. and then he was fine. I, maybe I'm being too hard on him. Yeah, I've, I've always liked Costner. I, I, I don't I, know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, the Untouchables. I, I love him in Field of Dreams. Um, yeah, I do too. I like Field but, of Dreams. I like, uh, what was the one he did, the other baseball picture? Oh, uh, For the Love of the, the Love Game. For the Love of the Game. I like that. So maybe I like him more yeah. than I think. In fact, I loved the one that came out not too long. I forget the name of it now, where he's the... Uh, Oh, he's the manager of the Browns. Oh, yeah, Strat draft day. day. Yeah. But then you have movies like Robin Hood. Well, My yeah. gosh, well, what an abomination. Yeah. He was just badly, he was miscast. I, mean, I think that's when I started not liking yeah. him. I mean, the man had, he, he couldn't hold a British accent, which is very famous now. Right. I mean, Robin Hood Men you know, made fun of it in its trailer right. alone. Um, anyway, uh, Costner was right on all counts. The Bodyguard is the best-selling soundtrack of all time. Um, Dolly Parton was driving... Uh, the first time that she heard Houston's rendition of the song. She said, I turned the radio on, and all of a sudden I heard that acapella part. This was from a 2017 press conference. She said, I knew it was something familiar, and then by the time it dawned on me what I was hearing, when Whitney went into the chorus, she said, I had to stop the car because I almost wrecked it. She said, I thought my heart was just going to burst right out of my body. In an interview with UK music magazine Q, Dolly Parton said she was blown away by Whitney's version. Uh, she said that Whitney uh, took this simple song of mine and made it such a mighty thing. She said it almost became her song. It certainly is the definitive version. She has basically credited Whitney as having you know, the better, the most important, significant version. She said, some writers say, ooh, I hate the way they've done that to my song, or that version wasn't what I had in mind. Dolly said, I just think it's wonderful that people can take a song and do so many wonderful things in so many different ways. The song returned to the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart following Houston's death. Its comeback was fueled by an enormous resurgence in digital sales in the week after her passing. It eventually reached number three. When it did, it became the fifth song to become a top 10 hit in two different chart runs. It joined the ranks of The Twist, Monster Mash, Stand By Me, White Christmas, 
White Christmas isn't included because it's been more than one, more than two runs. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now it joined the Twist, Monster Mash, Stand by Me, which makes sense given mm-hmm. the movie in the eighties. Can you name the, f- the fifth one? It's probably another one that was in a movie that uh, oh yeah was covered later on. Not covered, just in a movie. All right, give me a hit. Swing. Oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. You got it. Gotcha. Yeah. Bohemian was the fifth. Yeah. Um, many listeners. Actually, this surprises me. Well, it does, but it doesn't, I guess. Many listeners today still don't know that Houston's version is a cover of a Dolly Parton song. Really? I thought that was pretty... I like, thought everybody knew that. Pretty, I mean, it was it was so yeah. well publicized. I mean, that's all they talked about when the song came out. But yeah, I, I guess in polls, people still um, younger, they had to be younger listeners, have no idea that it was a Dolly Parton song originally. And... Dolly Parton says she is totally okay with that. She says, a lot of people say that's Whitney's song. And she says, I always say that's fine. She can have the credit. I just want my cash. (laughs) Gotta love Dolly. So yeah, um, I will always love you. That is my first selection for side B. And I think most of the listeners out there probably assumed it was coming. So have you seen stills from the movie? Like, Like Kevin Costner's haircut is awful. In the movie, I mean, I have, and I've, I remember the trailer. I've seen, yeah. It's I, just especially during the time period. Like maybe today it wouldn't look as bad, um, but but back in the nineties, it just it was awful. Was he sporting a mullet? No, no. It was just <laughs> it, was, it was cut really, really short. And oh yeah, he was Secret Service. That would make sense. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't even like a it just anyway. Someone asked him about it, and he said because it was the screenplay had been around for a couple decades. It was actually written for Steve McQueen. Really, and it was never made. So he cut his hair to look like Steve McQueen because he wanted an homage to the to the original actor that starred in it. Okay, that's cool, but you still had to make it timely and relevant. <laughs> right. No, the, whole, so, the movie is timely and relevant. Oh, it's very okay. modern, but yeah. his haircut wasn't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now I am going to see it someday. I just it's one that somehow just eluded me. I've I've never never seen the Bodyguard. So. Well, yeah. See that. See that. Definitely. Spend some quality time with your wife. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So my next one, um, going back to the, to the 90s, this was another huge song um, in my repertoire of the time, is Go West by the Pet Shop Boys. Their version came out in 1993 from their album Very, and it is a cover, and a lot of people didn't know this either, by the Village People. Yes, sir. Everybody knows YMCA. A lot of people know Macho Macho Man. Not as many people know... Go West. Yeah, In the Navy was the, the fourth. In the Navy, too, yeah. another one, yep. Um, yeah, this is the one that I was talking about two weeks ago. I, I said that, you know, when we put this and Erasure oh, together, yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is, if, if we do that, it, the beat doesn't change.
Similar to uh, Erasure's um, treatment of ABBA, synth-pop duo Pet Shop Boys took a swing at the village people and scored a home run with their version of Go West. The classic American sentiment, Go West, Young Man, attributed to Horace Greeley, became a symbol for pursuing one's dreams and determining one's own individuality. Musically, the song shares a similar melody with the Russian national anthem. Just, just it's not, it's not an exact, but, but there are some similarities. I'm going to have yeah, to yeah. listen now, yeah. Critically and commercially, the song was a success. The single reached number one in a number of countries and number one in the U.S. dance chart, on the dance chart. Um, I loved the song the first time I heard it. I was already a, a Pet Shop Boys fan, thanks to uh, my roommate and our friend Doug. Oh, yes. One of, one, one of his bands that seeped into mine, to my repertoire. And, um, yeah, I just, I just loved it. Um, I remember when the, when the record came out, it had this, um, this orange case. It was a very unique jewel case. I remember that. And um, it was the last. It was the last track. In fact, the only annoying thing about the song was um, it, it was one of those. They loved to do this in the '90s, the hidden track thing. Oh yeah. And I didn't mind the hidden track thing as long as they left a space on the CD to go to the next song. But trying to make a mixtape from this was very difficult because after Go West, there's about a minute of silence, and then there's this little reprise of, of, of something at the end. That's why you press the pause button. Well, my point is for this mixtape. Oh, for that, yeah. I'm choosing a version that appeared on a um, a Pride record that it done. In fact, I think it actually appeared on this Pride record um, before it was included on Very. It was actually written for this Pride compilation from from I gotcha. L- yeah. LGBT artists and so forth. And so that's why I'm including this version on the playlist because it actually ends when it's supposed to end. Otherwise, it's going to mess, mess up our mixtape. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I follow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm just now I'm really nostalgic for Uptown at Bowling Green. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a club guy. Uh, that's probably no surprise to anybody listening. But there was a time because my my roommate liked a lot of this uh, synth pop music, um, where you didn't hear a lot of that, especially even in college in the '90s in Ohio. A lot of the alternative. There were some. I mean, I get to know people that listen to the Smiths and REM, but right. it just wasn't as widespread as it should have been. And so there was a place, um, you know, that played cool synth pop music on Saturday night, and that was Uptown. And people would go and dance. So I would just go for the music. Yeah. Uh, and I might dance a little bit. Who knows? Gosh, I'm sure it was quite a sight to see. But um, And they would have the they'd use projector and video screen, and they would show videos as well. I remember seeing the Smashing Pumpkins uh, Today video for the first time, this video, several other ones. But yeah. Go West was a huge staple that they played and everybody dug it. Yeah, BG, and because Uptown was, of course, upstairs, they also had a downtown. Which was the classic which, rock sports yeah. bar. Because I remember there were so many Saturday nights that I, the three of us would head downtown, you and Doug would go upstairs. You never joined us? I, I joined you a few times. Okay, I okay. did, but I, I'm not a dancer. You know? I'm not either, but so, it was, I just loved it. Yeah. Listening to loud synth pop right. in, in, with other people that like it, it, it was oh, rare at the time. Well, yeah, without question. But yeah, and I joined you a few times, but I um, generally I would go downtown and I would just wait for you because eventually you'd filter downstairs once you'd, you know, had enough of the cardio going on up there to the beat. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, no, I, Doug, he loved, loved. And that's when that I got into techno boys. music. That, yep. That's kind of the dawn of techno in, in the 90s. And oh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, mm. we had fun. Yep, that's uh, Go West by Pet Shop Boys. Again, one of those Venn diagram songs. My, my, my wife loves it as well. In fact, when I'm preparing for this um, podcast, I, 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 we played it a few times and just remembered uh, taking road. It's a good road trip song. Yeah. Well, a really good road trip song. Yeah. Uh, now that you say that, I'd, 
I mean, on many levels. It, just it driving and, yeah. and even thematically it works. And even opening with just the sound of the birds, right? Right, right. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Be very, very good on the coast. Um, yeah. No, I, uh, you know, I'm surprised that the hidden tracks have not, in the digital age, been given their own numbered track. I'm surprised that no one's been... No one has done that yet. Right. Um, I never really gave it gave it much thought until you, you brought that up. So, all right. Well, here we go again. Um, this one was huge. Uh, it's a little bit later, I and mean, this is well, we're Gen X, of course. Um, so, if you were born at the tail end, you would have been sixteen at its release. This is ninety six, so we're getting a little bit later. But I went with "Killing Me Softly" by the Fugees. I heard he said. from the score um, again 1996 the original version was not Roberta Flack actually uh, Roberta Flack of course took it to number one in 1973 the tale of killing me softly actually begins with a 19 year old aspiring folk musician named Lori Lieberman hmm. uh, she was introduced to veteran songwriter Norman Gimbel and composer Charles Fox in 1971 the two men signed her to a management contract in which they would write her songs and manage her career and take 20% of her income. Uh, the three found inspiration in one another and began to pool songwriting ideas. Gimbel also began an affair with Lieberman, even though he was 24 years older and married. And they kept that affair a secret for years. In November of 1971, Lieberman, who was then 20 years old, went out with her friend Michelle Willens to see Don McLean perform at the Troubadour nightclub in L.A. McLean's hit song American Pie was rising in the charts, but it was his performance of one of his lesser-known songs, a track called Empty Chairs, that unexpectedly moved Lieberman to tears. As he performed the song, Lieberman grabbed a paper napkin and began to write poetic notes about her emotional response to the song. Willens confirms that Lieberman was scribbling notes like crazy on a napkin as soon as McLean began singing it. After the concert, Lieberman phoned Gimbel to read him her napkin notes and share her experience of the singer reaching deep inside her world with this song. Lieberman's description reminded Gimbel of a song title that was already in his notebook. It was a really bad title at the time. It was Killing Us Softly With Some Blues was mm. the title. Yeah, that, a little wordy there. Just this random title that he had come up with. Gimbel expanded on Lieberman's notes, fleshing them out into song lyrics, and then changed the title to Killing Me Softly With His Song. Gimbel said in 1973 that her conversation fed me, inspired me, gave me some language and a choice of words. Gimbel passed these lyrics to Fox, who then set them to music. So it was Lieberman 
who recorded the song first in late 1971 and released it as a single in 72, produced by Gimbal and Fox. This version did not chart. Lieberman promoted the song and the album, though, by touring, and she always introduced the song Killing Me Softly by describing its origin in the McLean performance. Gimbal and Fox even wrote out for her this introduction of the song so that she could deliver it consistently at each performance. In 1973, in her first appearance on national television, Lieberman described the same origin story on the Mike Douglas show after performing the song. When Lieberman toured through Canada in 74 to promote her second album, Billboard magazine carried a public relations piece from Capitol Records about the three-way song-producing team of Lieberman, Gimbel, and Fox, including a description of the Don McLean performance inspiring the song Killing Me Softly. Gimbel was quoted as saying that he relied on Lieberman to inspire his songwriting creativity since he had passed the most creative days of his youth. Quote, he said, now I need a reason to write, and Lori is one of the best reasons a lyric writer could have. Okay. In the 1970s, both Gimbel and Fox were in agreement with Lieberman about the song's origin at a McLean concert. Sean Derrick, who worked for Gimbel and Fox as an assistant in the 70s, confirmed that the two men would tell Mc- the McLean origin story all the time. Where do you think I'm going with this? Keep going. Okay. That all changed in 76. When the Lieberman-Gimbel-Fox songwriting team turned sour, Gimbel had divorced his wife three years earlier, but Lieberman eventually stopped the sexual relationship with him, okay, because she said he had become emotionally abusive, controlling, and unfaithful. She asked to be freed of her contract. So Gimbel and Fox directed their lawyers to demand $27,000 from Lieberman to pay expenses and to demand another $250,000 of her future income, effectively killing her career. All right. Lieberman's lawyer, Frederick Ansis, recalled later that Gimbel and Fox could have been nice guys, like other managers in the industry, who released their unsuccessful artists without onerous payments, but they chose the other route. Soon after, Gimbo and Fox refuted the origin story, and they took her name off of the writing credits. Interesting. Okay. Um, the, uh, they began saying that it was an urban legend, and they denied Lieberman's contribution entirely. Uh, in an interview since that time, the two have said it really didn't happen that way. They began insisting that they wrote the song themselves, then played it for Lieberman later, who was reminded of a McLean uh, performance, and the two insisted that Lieberman exaggerated the origin and that, and that Don McLean in no way inspired the song. All right, so we move forward. Roberta Flack, she first heard the song on an airplane when the Lieberman original was featured on the in-flight audio program. After scanning the listing of available radio selections, uh, Flack would recall, the title, of course, smacked me in the face. I immediately pulled out some scratch paper, I made musical staves, then played the song in at least at least eight to ten times, jotting down the melody as I heard it. When I landed, I immediately called Quincy Jones at his house and asked him how to meet Charles Fox. Two days later, I had the music. She said, shortly afterwards, um, I rehearsed the song with my band at the Tough Gong Studios in Kingston, Jamaica. She said, but I did not release it. I was unhappy with the background vocals on the various mixes that I auditioned. Atlantic executive... uh, Tunk Aram assured me it would be a hit no matter which mix was released, but I refused, recalling later, um, or, or saying many times later, uh, that I wanted to be satisfied with the record more than anything else. 
Well, eventually it was released in January of 73. Flack's version spent a total of five non-consecutive weeks at number one in February and March, more weeks than any other record in 73. Billboard ranked it as the number three song for 1973. And Flack won the 1973 Grammy Award for Record of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for the single, with Gimbal and Fox earning the Song of the Year Grammy. There was no mention of Lieberman. Okay. American hip-hop group The Fugees brought new life to the song. That's, of course, the version I'm uh, using here in 1996 when they recorded it for their second album, The Score, with Lauryn Hill singing lead vocals. Uh, Killing Me Softly was the last song The Fugees recorded for the score, after a member Praz made the suggestion to cover it. They loved a tribe called Quest, and they decided to sample the 1990 song Bonita Applebaum. Then they added a bass reggae drop. Initially, the Fugees wanted to change the lyrics of the song to make it anti-drugs and anti-poverty. But the songwriters, on, on, of note, Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox, refused. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the Fuji's version became an international hit, reaching number one on the U.S. Top 40 chart. Uh, it was number two on the U.S. Airplay chart. The song topped the charts in over 20 countries. In the U.K., it broke the record at the time for the most radio plays in a single week. It won the 1997 Grammy for Best R&B Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal, and their music video won the MTV Video Music Award for Best R&B Video. It was hailed as one of the most essential hip-hop songs in history by XXL, VH1 placed it on their 100 Greatest Songs of Hip-Hop list. Then in 2020, the song saw a resurgence in popularity on the social networking app TikTok. Oh, TikTok and its influence on music now. Um, and then the following year, 2021, Rolling Stone included it in their revised list of the 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. All of this because of Don McLean, interestingly. McLean said he had no idea the song was about him. In 1973, he told Rolling Stone, someone called me and said a song had been written about me and it was number one. It was an honor and a delight. I give Lieberman all of the credit. He said, my songs have always come from my personal thoughts and experiences, so it's overwhelming when someone is moved and touched by them like Lori was. He, he has this on his website, actually. And on his website, it acknowledges that he is the influence for the song, the inspiration for the song. Gimbal, learning about this, threatened McLean with a lawsuit in 2008, demanding that he remove from his website an assertion that McLean was the inspiration for Killing Me Softly and uh, removing all credit given to Lieberman. But McLean responded by showing Gimbal the latter's own words confirming the inspiration in that 1973 published article by Billboard. Hmm. His website continues to acknowledge that he inspired the song to this day, and Don McLean is the only source that you will find that gives credit for the song to Lori Lieberman today. That'd make a good movie. Yeah, it'd be a yeah. great movie. Yeah, uh, it's like its own little you know story there. Yeah. Um, sorry if that went long, but I, I was just you know from from start to finish as I was learning about this, I was just kind of mesmerized yeah, by the crazy. entirety of the story. So well, I, I love uh, I love both versions, both you know versions that people know. Um, yeah, no one knows Lori Lieberman's at all, but uh, we'll put it on the mention songs list. But yeah. Roberta's is just, it's so jazz-influenced, mm -hmm. but the Fugees, Lauren Hill, man, she Great. she's incredible. Definitely. The only thing I don't like about the Fugees version is all the chatter. They, they continue to talk through the song. I, I, it'd be much more effective if Wyclef Jean would just 
shut his mouth, <laughs> you know. But nonetheless, it's but that's that's hip hop. That, that is hip hop, yeah. 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 And then I love I love the Fugees. I love the score. I love this song. So had to include it. Awesome, great. All right, my next one. Well, let's put it this way: you don't normally mess with Johnny Cash. No, you do not mess with Johnny. He Cash. can cover your song, but tread cautiously those who dare to cover him. But somehow, Social Distortion was able to do this and turn an old country masterpiece into a driving punk rock classic. I'm talking about Social Distortion's version of Ring of Fire, which was released in 1990 from their album Social Distortion. The original was penned by Cash's second wife, June Carter, and was later covered by The Animals, Frank Zappa, Wall of Voodoo, a bunch of artists. Uh, they all put their signature mark on the song. But Social Distortion's version is my favorite of them all, of the covers. Not of, I still like Cash's the best. Um, now, it, it, it just, it's fun to take a classic song and try something new with it, right? So Social Distortion is clearly having fun with their version. But I don't see them trying to outdo the original, right? They're just taking it for a spin around the block, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I'm sure there are artists out there that say, hey, I'm going to do a better job than the original. I want mine to be known as the better version. I, I just don't see Mike Ness and Social Distortion taking this attitude. They were just like, hey, it's a great song. I don't know for sure. A lot of times covers uh, end up being recorded after being featured in, in live shows and, and eventually it becomes such a live um, a hit um, that they end up recording it in the studio. So that may have been the case here, but it just... Nothing disrespectful about it. They just take a great song and they give it that, uh, that California punk uh, treatment to it. And it's classic. Um, the band released it as their third single off the self-titled album. It hit number 25 on Billboard's alternative airplay chart. Modest success, but a big step for an 80s California punk band making their way into the mainstream. And this is the album that kind of put them into somewhat of the, the mainstream. Um, what, what do you think of this version? Um... Don't love it. Don't hate it. I mean, it's it's. I I, I can listen to it. I enjoy it. Um, I don't know. I, it's not. I, I really don't have feelings, you know, for or against. Okay. What did Cash think of it? Um, I don't have any record of him um, making a no. comment on it. I'd be curious. I mean, although he's usually pretty generous. I was going to say he probably people that have would, covered his stuff. Yeah, I would think that he would have been a fan yeah. of that question. Yeah. Um, no, I. I mean, I, I remember it when it was released in 90. Um, I don't know. I've never disliked it. I just, it, it's never, I'm, I'm a huge Cash fan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I mean, no one's going to compare. Cash, though, actually, when he recorded it, he did a cover version. 
Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, June Carter June, wrote it. Yeah. June yeah. wrote it. June's sister, Anita, covered it oh, first. okay. Gotcha. Yeah, Anita actually recorded it first. And Johnny Cash, he, he heard it and said, well, I can do better. And he went into the studio, and of course, he did better. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, Social Distortion's version is, like I said, it's not, it's, I don't say it's not serious, but it's not trying to be serious. Right. It's just, it's fun. Yeah. Love the driving guitars. Of course, mm-hmm. that's just, you know, the just social distortions in their name. So you yeah, that, that that distortion. Um, but they're, they're, they're just little characteristic parts of the song where Social Distortion makes it their own. Um, oh, yeah. Um, just just the style of the guitar playing. I'm, again, it's hard to describe. You got to listen to it. There's just a casual confidence in the way that it's performed. Oh, I, yeah, no, I would agree. You're saying that. a casual confidence, um, but musically, it's unique to the original, and so that's why I give it such high marks. Okay. It, they didn't try to make a note for note cover of what Johnny Cash had done. No, they didn't just take his song and put loud guitars in it. They, they meticulously made it their own well and here's what I will say about it is they modernized the song yeah I mean it does not sound dated no at all I mean when you're listening I love Cash and you know Ring of Fire is you know but you can listen when you listen to Ring of Fire it is a dated song I mean it clearly comes from another era sure sure. Uh, Social Distortion when performing it it's all it's it's a little more timeless Mm -hmm. it's a little more I you could you listen to Social Distortion's version it could come out in 2023, yeah, definitely. you know, um, in that respect, I give them props. I, I think that, you know, they were able to capture the song in a way that Cash's was, it, you know, just can't. It's just a so, different genre. Yeah. And, different expectations exactly. for like an older country yeah. song versus a uh, right somewhat mainstream punk song. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it, it certainly crosses the genre. I mean, it's, it is not a country song in their hands, but, you know, it's... It's rock. Um, yeah. Um, no, that's what I said. I, no, I, I don't know. Just it's all right. Yeah. I, I, okay. I didn't know if you were expecting something from me. In no, I'm just curious. Okay. That's why I asked. Yeah. No, it, it's. I don't know. I, I, I've always enjoyed it. I just. I don't know. I, I would defer to cash. I would just, you know, let it play. I wouldn't turn it off. But then I would want to hear the real thing. Gotcha. So gotcha. Here's one. All right. I'll, I'll ask you the same question. Okay. Okay. Walk this way. Yeah. Here we go. Run DMC, Raising Hell, 1986, took it to number four. The original version, of course, by Aerosmith, released in 75, reissued in 76, hit number 10 in 76 when it was released the second time.
What are your thoughts on Run DMC's version of this one? I really liked Run DMC um, in their infancy. Like I, I had their first couple albums on vinyl. Um, that was like old, before old school. That was old school, old school. You oh, know, that's well, the yeah. very beginning. Yeah, in the eighties, in the mid eighties. <clears throat> so I always liked, um, you know, Jam Master J and all those tunes. Um, I think it's really cool that the Aerosmith and Run DMC both agreed to do this version because you know hip hop was up and coming, rock was the standard. Made sense both of them as far as a, a cross mm-hmm. promotion for their each other's audience. But, you know, hip-hop has always been about sampling. And I think it's really cool that instead of just sampling Walk This Way, they actually decided to re-record it with the original artist. Yeah. And that's what really sets it apart. So I'm not a huge fan of the song. Uh, I mean, obviously, the original is a classic. It's a classic rock canon. Nothing wrong with this version. Uh, Maybe I'm kind of where you are with Cash. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I won't turn it off. But I think it's more what it represents and how they just showed respect to the original artist by inviting them to, to join. And the video, frankly, oh, was yeah. amazing. Coming through the wall. Coming yeah. through the wall and, you know, in the, um, in the studio and, and then performing together. So, yeah, no, for that alone, I think it's, it's an incredible song. Okay. Well, there, there is an interesting story to this one, too. All right. Um, first of all, the Aerosmith song. Uh, a lot of people really do not understand what this song is about. It sounds like gibberish to them. It's actually about a promiscuous cheerleader who leads a schoolboy through his first sexual experience. And it is an extremely sexual song. It's played perfectly to Aerosmith's young young male fan base, but it's very ambiguous. That was very intentional, very deliberate in order to get an airplay. Sure. Um, Lead singer Steven Tyler, of course, who wrote the lyrics, said, Walk This Way came out all at once. If you listen to the words, they are filthy as hell. Mm -hmm. He said, but if you listen closely, you'll hear that I disguised it very cleverly. Tyler points out, though, that while the lyrics are very sexually charged, it is the girl who is in control Mm -hmm. the entire song. Um, Joe Perry came up with the guitar riff for the song, and the band developed the track. But four days later, which is an eternity in their recording schedule at the time, Steven Tyler still didn't have any words for the song. And with no lyrics forthcoming, they considered dumping the track, but inspiration struck when the band, minus Tyler and Perry, took a break and went for a walk around New York City when they were recording, okay? The movie Young Frankenstein. I love this because everything seems to come back around. in Full circle. Yes. The movie Young Frankenstein was playing in Times Square, so they went to see it. It was the famous scene in the movie where Igor, played by Marty Feldman, tells Dr. Frankenstein to walk this way, meaning to follow him, and Dr. Frankenstein instead imitates Igor's walk. Right, right, Okay, right. that was a game changer for the band. The band thought the scene was hilarious, and when they saw Tyler the next day, they informed him that the title of the song would be Walk This Way. Okay? Interesting. Aerosmith wasn't well known when the single first was released, and the song did not chart, uh, when it, when it was released in 75. A year later, after their album Rocks took off, the single was reissued and it became a hit. And they actually had to re-release Dream On the next year for the same thing to happen. Dream On didn't chart initially either until its second right, release. I just mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, the problem is, it wasn't long after this that Aerosmith fell from grace. Their their addiction, um, you know, their, their problems with, with drugs and the like... It, they were pretty much washed up. People forget that now, but Aerosmith, they, they were dead to the world, 
okay? So 10 years later, Run DMC, they stumble across the song during a search for breakbeats to use during DJ sets in the early 80s. They had no idea who Aerosmith was. had never heard of them. And they actually thought the band was called Toys in the Attic. <laughs> <laughs> Mistaking the album title for right. the band name. Rick Rubin, who was producing Raising Hell, was a huge fan of Aerosmith. And he suggested to Jam Master Jay that he call Perry to ask if he and Tyler would play on their cover version. Ruben grew up in the suburbs listening to groups like Aerosmith, and he knew it would be a great way for the group to cross over to a white audience. Aerosmith's 1985 album, Done With Mirrors, had flopped, and the band were were washed up for all intents and purposes. They were still, um, you know, they, they weren't silver, and they, they basically were about done. Run DMC had already made inroads incorporating rock elements in hip-hop with their songs Rock Box and King of Rock. But their rappers, Joseph Run Simmons and Daryl DMC McDaniels, wanted nothing to do with an Aerosmith collaboration. Hmm. When Ruben told them to learn the words to walk this way, they couldn't understand what Steven Tyler was singing, and they hated <laughs> it. Uh, the band didn't like the idea of rapping Aerosmith's lyrics. Uh, with DMC explaining to Rolling Stone in 2009, he said, we, we told Ruben that this is hillbilly gibberish, this is bullshit, <laughs> he said. They refused to record it. They just refused. They wanted no part in it, okay? But they were later convinced when their DJ, Jam Master J, told them that Ruben had Steven Tyler and Joe Perry in the studio in the next room, and they were going to do this song with or without them. Hmm. So Jay gave them the idea to switch off lines between the rappers instead of having each of them take an entire verse. DMC said, if it had been up to us, our version would have been just the beat, a couple of guitars, and me and Run bragging about how great we are. <laughs> Run DMC wasn't familiar with Aerosmith when they recorded this, but Joe Perry's 11-year-old stepson was big into hip-hop and would blast Run DMC from his bedroom. So Perry knew about them. Uh, when he received the call, Perry's reaction was predictable. He said, it took me all of a minute to say yes. I didn't know what was going to happen when I walked in the studio. I thought they'd show us some idea on how to rearrange it, but all they had was a drum track. And Ruben said, all you got to do is play the song the way you would play it. He said, so Stephen and I sat down and we, we played it. So when he and Tyler went to the studio, they got a chilly reception from the rappers. He said, they weren't at all excited about it, frankly. Um, they weren't sure they wanted us on the record. They weren't sure they wanted the song on the record. They weren't sure they wanted electric guitars on there. They were at the forefront of this new kind of music, and they didn't want to spoil it. I think they saw it as either a step sideways or a step backwards. So Joe Perry, okay, he brought a guitar to the studio to record his part, but when he wanted to add bass, there was a problem. He'd forgotten his bass at home. Some kids that were hanging around the studio were willing to help out. They lived nearby, so one of them went home and retrieved a bass that Perry used to add that section. Those kids, as it turns out, were the Beastie Boys. Oh, interesting. Another act that Rick Rubin was producing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So both bands were working against the clock. Aerosmith had to catch a plane to do their next gig. Run DMC had an even more pressing concern. Their hire car was due back before the rental shop closed for the day. And as Perry and Tyler headed to the airport, nobody, none of them, were aware that they had hit on something big. Run DMC still wasn't even sure they were going to include it on the album. Okay? Ruben believed that this was the perfect song to expose rap music to a white audience. And he was right. It led to top 40 radio play, and it became Run DMC's first big hit, going to number four on Billboard. Further, it led to significant television coverage for rap artists, 
who up to that point were mostly ignored by the white media. The record uh, and the video had a huge effect on both groups. Rick Rubin said in the book, I Want My MTV, it opened the door to Run DMC's full suburban crossover and it reminded people how great Aerosmith was. This is the song that Rolling Stone said legitimized rap music. Well, that, and didn't it kind of relaunch exactly. Aerosmith? Exactly, yeah. Aerosmith actually would enjoy a tremendous resurgence with the help of the collaboration, uh, but they still weren't sober when they recorded it. Hmm. So the band was doing more drugs than ever and, and deteriorating it at this fast pace um, when the song found them a new audience. Um, they, they entered rehab, they finally, finally got clean, and you know, here they had their first hit since Come Together in 1978. Uh, the collaboration um, also boosted the band's profile in Europe, where Run DMC had already been huge. Um, the Run DMC video uh, was the first, as it turns out, that Tyler and Perry appeared in. They, they had never recorded, you know, never filmed a video until Walk This Way with Run DMC. It was the first time many young Aerosmith fans actually saw what, what Perry and Tyler looked like. Uh, Aerosmith would use MTV to expand their audience for the rest of their career. And, and, of course, they made videos for most of their singles, starting with Dude Looks Like a Lady in 88. Well, he's, a, he's that perfect front man, like I talked about with David Lee Roth last week. Oh, yeah. He was perfect for the MTV generation. Unfortunately, they came about 10 years too early. Yeah. But then they were smart enough to take advantage of it. Exactly. Uh, Dude Looks Like a Lady had, had won two MTV Video Music Awards. And along with Kid Rock, um, Run DMC toured with Aerosmith in 2002. Uh, later that year, Jam Master Jay um, was shot and killed at his recording studio. Aerosmith was one of many bands to pay their respects and contribute to, fun, uh, to a fund to try and help find the killer. Aerosmith and Run DMC, they only performed this song together one time. And it was at the Grammy Awards in 2020. I figured it was an award show. Yeah. Instead of Aerosmith breaking through the wall like in the video, the rappers came through a wall to join the rockers. So, um, But yeah, it was it was really just... This song, nobody had any idea what was going to become of this song. The, the rappers hated it. Aerosmith was just uneasy, and they were probably too high to really take in the moment anyway. And then it relaunched the rockers. It legitimized rap. And suddenly, both, both Run DMC and Aerosmith were at the top of the charts and at the, really on top of the world. Kind of what I said at the beginning, right? Significant song. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, um, I, I, you mentioned the lyrics, and I always knew the lyrics, you know, had some sexual content. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, walk, wow. There's yeah. two or three in here that I'm just like, uh -huh. wow. Yeah. And if you, if you actually look up, cause Steven Tyler's actual line for line, uh, explanation is available online. The walk this way refers to a finger and how to use it. Well, I, I wasn't going to get really explicit here, but well, no, but <laughs> it, it, it always reminds me of, of Rocky horror. Oh yeah. yeah you yeah, know, yeah. when they say, you know, when you call out the line, uh, well, I'm not going to call it. Yes, don't call it. But, but just, you know, this way with, yes, with the yes, finger. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, it is a very filthy, filthy song. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't even feel comfortable reading this. And it's a song from what, 1975? 75. Yeah. Okay, wow. He did a, a pretty good job of disguising he it. He did, because, I mean, it, you know, it took, it wasn't until years later that I even understood the song myself. I had no idea. Hmm. Um, but I, I read Stephen Ty. I don't remember where I saw it. It was. Might have just been on the Aerosmith website, but yeah, when I when I actually looked at his line for line explanation, whew, I mean it's yeah that if the censors had any idea that song would never have set, <laughs> right. never have found the light of day. Right. So very good, interesting. All right, my next one. I apologize ahead of time. 
I apologize. Um, and it's not my fault. It's not my fault that half the world hates the song now and that most millennials and Gen Z, like 90% of them hate the song. Like son, my son, when he found out that I was including this and he's 21, was so appalled. He tried to talk me out of it. Really? But Family Guy ruined this for everybody. And I'm talking about Surf and Bird, originally by the Trashmen. Um, this version by the Ramones, 1977, from their album Rocket to Russia. I went to everybody's head about the bird. Where do you fall on the surfing bird? Okay, first of all, the original version, it ripped off. Um, it's surf music. It, well, it is. It's but, surf music. But Papa Umamao came out first, and right. they, they literally just stole. I forget who sang Papa Umamao. I have that information. It's the Rivingtons. Um, Rivingtons. The Rivingtons. Thank it's you. actually two Rivington songs put together. Right. I was going to say so they, Papa Umamao and um, Bird is the Word. Right. And they combined those yeah. two to make a new song. Um, so I mean, the song itself was fairly unoriginal but um it's a fun song i mean certainly it was novelty when released i i i love i i love the ramones you know i I'm, i don't i'm not as big a fan as you are um but i mean i've always enjoyed the ramones i love when they i love their covers of of the early tunes i don't know that i would have went with this one simply because of how it's been used you know it, it, you're right I mean there there are a lot of people that have basically well because the family guy gag where yeah, it, yeah. it's multiple episodes yeah I might I might have went with it's like, funny it, well, yeah I, I might have went with like baby I love you or, or one of their other covers but I am um, I'm good with it I, I it's the Ramones it's fun and this is why I love the Ramones you know we've talked about this multiple times in the show but the Ramones really just wanted to get back to the roots of rock and roll with mm-hmm. louder guitars I mean they're bubblegum music 60s bubblegum music with loud guitars right and I think this is a perfect um, version. They did California Sun. There were a couple notable covers they did oh, yeah. uh, on, on two albums early on in their career. And I, what I, I love surf music. I don't love it to the point where I like listen to Dick Dale and, and the Ventures all the time. But I, I love this stylistically. I mean, think about our original theme song oh, yeah. to the podcast was, was very surf rock. I love that. And I think surf rock has a lot to do with um, more, more to do with alternative and punk music than people realize. Right. And so by the Ramones choosing this song really made it clear to everybody that the influence of surf music and early rock and roll had on punk. Oh, yeah. And that's why I like it. Anyway. question. Um, so the, the Trashmen took this song to number four on Billboard. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was a big hit in 1963. Like I mentioned before, a hybrid of the Rivington's Papa Umamao and The Bird is the Word. The Ramones covered it in 1978. Um, and like I said, they didn't necessarily reinvent the song, but their version fits perfectly into their brand of bubblegum punk rock. Uh, it also, was also covered by another punk band a few years later, The Cramps, the, oh, and it okay. became a live staple for the band. 
Yeah, I, now that you say that, I, I, I do recall that. Yeah. And the Cramps, of course, are, are enjoying this renaissance because of uh, Wednesday. I don't know if you've watched Wednesday yet on Netflix. I love Wednesday. It yeah. is brilliant. But, uh, but uh, I'm not sure if it's Burton. I'm pretty sure Burton probably chose the Cramps song. Um, but the fact that, um, and I can't think of her name now, I'm awful, up-and-coming actress that plays... Oh, Jenna Ortega. Jenna Ortega. Um, invented the dance on her own. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, I read that. So, uh, but, you know, back to Family Guy here. Uh, if you aren't an avid viewer of the show, the main character, Peter Griffin, loves to annoy the other characters in various locations with his favorite childhood song. Of course, that is uh, Bird is the Word. It becomes a running gag on the show. So a lot of people despise it because it really is an earworm. Oh, of a melody. Without question. And I know there are songs that other people love that are earworm to me that I can't listen to. So I get it. But this is one I happen to like, right? Earworms, you either love them or you can't stand them. Correct. Um, this show, again, this, it just shows that surf rock is a huge inspiration for early punk rock and, and the artists of the late 70s. And I just, I like this time in, in music because it's kind of a, a sandbox of different styles. Mm-hmm. And that's what, kind of what punk rock was. Right, punk rock. Everyone says, "Well, punk rock is people screaming and loud distorted guitars." I suppose that's one way you could look at it. To me, punk rock was just not following any of the rules and just doing whatever you felt like doing. And the fact that it could be played—you mentioned the Go Go's uh, earlier—the fact that they couldn't even play their instruments. Right. right? Um, you can play simple punk music, you know, after a few days of just you know someone showing you a few things on the guitar. Um, and, and, and a lot of those punk bands started that way. But then as they continue to evolve, they become better musicians. And you see that with a lot of punk bands. We just talked about Social Distortion, right? Mm-hmm. By the third or fourth album, they're, they're turning into more of a, of a kind of a finely tuned rock band than just kind of this loose punk band. And so that's what I love about it, because punk and corporate, the Clash was perfect for this, bringing in jazz and reggae and, and all sorts of different styles into their own version of punk. Oh, yeah. And so for me, punk really is an umbrella term that doesn't mean a whole lot unless you tell me what kind of punk or what artist you're talking about, you know, because there's, you know, even even punk past our time, stuff like um, uh, what's what's the what's the band? Uh, they were kind of a big punk band in the 90s. <sighs> Why can't I think of their name? Um, no, I'm not sure which one you're. Um, they did. I, they did. They did a, a video where they parodied the boy bands, too. Why can't I think of all they did all the small things? Oh, Blink-182. Yeah, Blink-182, okay? Even those punk bands, you know, uh, or Green Day, did their own thing with it, right? Green Day's not an exact copy of the Ramones. You can definitely see the through line there. Right. But Green Day, you know, did their own thing and, and did it very well. So uh, that just is a, is a perfect example, taking, like you said, this novelty song that did well, you know, 15 years before this, and, and just have fun. And then this wasn't a single or anything. This was, you mentioned a lot of times there's filler. I don't mind filler if it's good filler. Oh, yeah. Not, you're, yeah I'm in agreement on that. You know? The problem is so often filler is not good. Right, right. <laughs> so. And in the Ramones, even though all their stuff was two and a half minutes long and, and a lot of it similar chord, chord progressions, they just they brought something to the songs. They, they had fun with them. They were no nonsense. They, they just played. You know, It wasn't about the image. I mean, it was about the image, yes, but... It was pretending like they didn't have an image. That was the thing. Right. Right? The jeans and the, and the leather jackets and the haircuts, that was their image. But the fact that they didn't talk on stage, the fact that they didn't tell much later get involved in music videos and so forth was punk rock. You know, I almost, because we, we share our music selections with each other long before we, you know, record. Um, when when I saw that you had this, I was, I came so close. I was so inspired. I almost 
dropped one of my songs to bring in the Blues Brothers. Because mm. if you're talking about covers, sure. you know, and, Soul Man. Well, I wasn't going to go Soul oh, Man, though. Okay. I was going to go Rubber Biscuit. Oh, okay. Because Rubber Biscuit and Surfing Bird would have, you know, they're both nonsense, yeah, yeah, yeah. just gibberish, you know. I came so close. That's interesting. But the reason I didn't, and of course, I guess now they're going to make the mention songs list. I didn't expect that. But uh, <laughs> the reason I didn't is because Belushi and Aykroyd were just a little bit older. We were looking more Gen X artists, you know, uh, doing cover versions. Belushi and Aykroyd, of course, are boomers, you know. That's why I didn't go there. But I... I did. I came so close, and that. But then I did drop uh, what I originally was going to use, and brought in the Go Go's for that reason because gotcha. I, wa- I wanted to compliment it. And I thought, you know, well, cool jerk, and I, I don't know. To me, it was like in the same vein. So, um, yeah, it was. It was just. I don't know. I, I love the Ramones. I, the Family Guy does not bother me at all. I can listen to Surfing Bird anytime. So I'm I'm just disappointed because I was aware of the Cramps growing up, um, just because I saw the T-shirts and, and you know I knew knew some of the songs right. that everyone knew, um, but just never latched onto them like I latched onto other artists. And of course, at that age, I was listening to a lot of different genres, not just punk. Right? If I'd gone down the rabbit hole of punk music, I'm sure it would have come to it very quickly. But now going back and, and, and listening to stuff for this. Um, and my son kind of discovered them a couple of years ago too so we started listening to them and I just if I would have known how surf rock that band is oh yeah they would have been they would have been one of my favorite bands of all time I mean because the more I listen to it just like this is just really good surf rock punk mm-hmm. and, and I think the fact that the, the Goo Goo Muck now, now is a huge downloadable hit because of Jenna Ortega proves that that it, it's just timeless timeless fun Guitar-based music. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, I I don't know a lot of their catalog, uh, a lot of their repertoire, but I um. A lot of stuff. We, I think we featured uh, one of theirs. Uh, didn't we feature? I was a teenage werewolf on the. Or maybe we just mentioned it on one of the Halloween episodes. But uh, we mentioned. I don't. A lot of their stuff is horror themed. Right. Yeah. But the music, series surf rock. Oh yeah. Bubblegum. It's just fun. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, I don't know a lot about them, but what I've heard, I've I've really enjoyed. Yeah. It's just not a band I've ever. Really. I'm just glad people are, are, are discovering them. Diff- different generations are discovering them. Yeah. Maybe they'll get um, a little more, you know, not respect. I don't think they're disrespected, but a little more notoriety there you go. for later generations. Yeah. Well, that's all we can wish for any of the good bands out there, really. Okay. Well, my next choice, um, I almost didn't go here. almost didn't go there because it's a live uh, version of the song. But it is available without the, the just the abrupt you know applause on either end. So if we can fade in, fade out, I thought, what the hell, I'm going to do it. I went with Men Who Sold the World by Nirvana from MTV Unplugged in New York from 94.
original version, of course, by David Bowie in 1970. Um, The Man Who Sold the World, first of all, it's a David Bowie narrative song about the pain and anguish of a fractured personality. And a lot of people really did not know this song. A lot of people that did had no idea what it was about. Um, And, you know, for the most part, a few people just noticed it at all when it was released in 1970. It was a very poor selling album of the same name. Um, The song was never released as a single, and it was soon overshadowed by the mighty glam rock um, of Bowie Doppelganger, Ziggy Stardust, and Aladdin Sane. Okay. Uh, it was actually a Scottish singer, Lulu, who scored a hit with her cover of The Man Who Sold the World in 1974, uh, even though as she later confessed she had absolutely no idea what the hell the song was about, uh, which really she could be forgiven for her lack of understanding because beneath the phased and compressed vocals of Bowie's very eerie original are dreamlike depictions of figures speaking, quote, of was and when, gazing gazeless stares and walking a million hills after having died alone a long, long time ago. Okay? It does sound, you know, indecipherable, you know? And then that was, that's just, that's Bowie, Mm -hmm. really. Uh, In truth, nobody knew what the hell Bowie was singing about. But Lulu had the powerful voice, if not the conviction to just about pull it off. She also had David Bowie himself on backing vocals and saxophone, producing the song along with his bandmate Mick Ronson on guitar. I guess, I, I looked on Spotify, I couldn't find it, uh, there was an English psychedelic band by the name of Here and Now that next covered the song in 1983. Apparently, they framed the song as some kind of quirky ghost story uh, with a breezy ska-style makeover, which sounds interesting. I'd like to hear it, but again, Spotify didn't have it. And no one paid attention to their version either, and like Bowie's original, their version failed to chart. It was basically a song that was forgotten and, and was going to stay that way. Which is why it came as such a surprise when a stripped-back, rustic, and deadly serious version of the song was performed on MTV Unplugged by a gravel-voiced American singer. (laughs) It took a while to sink in, but yes, the biggest rock group in the world, renowned for their loud, honest, punk-influenced sound, had really just performed an acoustic version of the little-known song by an artist renowned for artifice, reinvention, and theatricality. And it was far better than Bowie's original. Hell, I, Nirvana's version of this song is easily the best version ever performed because the rock group in question was Nirvana and Kurt Cobain... Understood what the song was about. Understood what the song was about. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he was probably the first person in history <laughs> to know and to understand what the song was about and to self-identify with it. And of course, that was right near the end. Exactly. Yeah, the, the Seattle band had just released their... their um, well, their visceral third studio album, In Utero, when they appeared on MTV Unplugged. Uh, the precedent had already been established by previous artists that when you performed live on Unplugged, not only did you sit down and play quiet versions of some well-chosen originals, you also chose covers of songs from genres fans might not expect in a big display of musical authenticity. Um, frankly, it was the best part of Unplugged. I always thought so anyway. I mean, who could forget Mariah's version of I'll Be There, 10,000 Maniacs cover of Because the Night. Forget the big one. You know, R.E.M., yeah, R- right. I'm getting there. All right. R.E.M. performed the 60s anthem, Love is All Around. Yeah. Melissa Etheridge did Thunder Road with Springsteen. All right. And then Clapton blew them all away with his acoustic rendition of Layla. Which one were you naming? I always said, I didn't know you weren't specifically naming covers. As far as Unplugged, I think what really launched Unplugged was when... Um, um, 
Bon Jovi did When a Dead oh, or Alive. Yeah, okay. And that became, that started the whole Unplugged thing. Right, yeah. No, I was I was just going through some of the, yeah, the covers. Yeah. Um, uh, you said the greatest moment of, and that's why. Oh, I got gotcha. you. So I'm thinking the greatest moment may of Unplugged would have been yeah. the Bon Jovi tune that started it all. But I see what you're saying as yeah. far as covers go. Yeah. Um, no, I, for me, it's Thunder Road with Melissa Etheridge. Was it? Yeah. yeah. And I named it. Um, for me, it's Clapton. I mean, his, his acoustic Layla, I think, changed his entire, I think it changed the younger generation's perspective of who Clapton is and what yeah. he what he does, um, but here's the thing: when you get down to when you, when you get down to bare bones, Nirvana's version of "The Man Who Sold the World" is probably the greatest single cover ever on MTV Unplugged. I think, I really do, um, because you know when it was their turn, Nirvana frontman. You know, Kurt Cobain. He th- he threw in the song that he loved by Bowie. He had actually in his journals. Uh, gone into great detail. I've, I've read through some of them um, online of the 50 greatest uh, albums, his 50 greatest albums. Pro- Beatles probably all over that. Oh yeah, they yeah. are. But Bowie's um, uh, The Man Who Sold the World, that album, he actually has his, he had at number 45. Hmm, okay. So when he picked, you know, the song to, the cover to, to do, he just went for one of his favorites. Um, but again, it was a song no one else understood. Uh, Nirvana grouped the man who sold the world with other first-person songs such as Come As You Are, Penny Royalty, All Apologies, and Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Some of them were written by Cobain, but all of them became about Cobain. Yeah, I mean, he does a, a lead belly song. Yeah. Um, basically, you know, Cobain, he was the tormented and paranoid rock star, hellishly weary of his fame, his heroin addiction, his chronic ill health. Uh, he He assigned... He was assigned the role as the voice of a generation. And here, after a screw-up or two in rehearsal, they played the Bowie number not only quietly but brilliantly, with Cobain accentuating the eeriness of the original by making his acoustic guitar howl and whine through a fuzz box, almost in some unholy kind of way. Cellist Lori Goldston also added to the spectral atmosphere with her playing. But there was no doubt that the crux of the matter really lay in the fact that Kurt internalized the lyrics. He expressed his inner pain through the song, in a way that seemed to illuminate its essential meaning. It was like he he basically, he explained the song through its performance. Suddenly everybody understood what Bowie's lyrics meant. Um, Cobain sang the track like someone broken, you know, hopeless, haunted. He inhabited the role of the narrator who's shocked to confront a part of himself that he thought lost at the moment he comes face to face with the man who sold the world. Um, now, perhaps Kurt was the man who sold the world, you know, maybe that was his younger self when Whittingly sold his soul, when he unleashed Nevermind and became an international youth icon, uh, a mainstream figure, you know, public property, all, all the rest. Perhaps the loss of part of himself was the reason for his psychological turmoil and his feelings of alienation, which he poured into the lines, I searched for form and land for years and years I roamed. Bowie actually explained the song to Rolling Stone in 97. He said that the track was all about when you know that there's a piece of yourself that you haven't really put together yet, and you have this great searching, this great need to find out who you really are. Um, Since Cobain's death, many people have tied themselves up in knots trying to explain Bowie's cryptic lyrics in relation to Cobain. Uh, But there can be no question that The Man Who Sold the World became a Nirvana song as soon as the band's extraordinary performance aired in December of 93. Uh, the group made it even more their own. They began playing it loudly <laughs> at 31 live shows up until Cobain's suicide in April of 94. Um, 
The release of the track on the MTV Unplugged New York album in November of 94 only confirmed its status, as well as its inclusion on Nirvana's self-titled Best Of compilation in 2002. Uh, the song was no longer a glam rock song or a new romantic song. It was a grunge song, pure and simple. And who was this David Bowie guy anyway, you know? Bowie himself got to see this ch-ch-ch-change, if you will, in perception. Um, he, he actually talked with good humor about how when he would play The Man Who Sold the World on stage, kids at the concert would come up to him and say, it's really cool that you're doing a Nirvana song. <laughs> so, um, Yeah, Kirk hated that Voice of a Generation um, comment. That yeah. put a lot of pressure on him. And that That's what... Really, that's what caused him to come undone. I think. I mean, that, that there was... a lot of things. Yeah, but um, that was that was a tough one for him. Mm-hmm. Like he he wanted to have an impact. He wanted to influence people. Like there was at one point where he in, in his house or his apartment heard heard some kids walking by singing "Smells Like Teen Spirit." I think you talked about that. Yeah, and that really uh, was was you know important to him, but couldn't handle the the pressure of it. Yeah. Now it was it was basically the the identification you know becoming that voice of the next generation as the media um you know portrayed him you pair that with courtney love and that 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 was the end of cobain mm-hmm. um i mean it's it's still one of the tragic tales of rock history the 27 club you know yep all right i think i have two more here to go my next one uh is a song that just about everyone on the planet knows and that is mrs robinson Originally by Simon and Garfunkel, I'm talking about the Lemonheads version, 1992, from their album "It's a Shame About Ray." I got to see them on this this tour, actually, 92. Mm. Uh, the one, 107.9, the end had a, had a tour where they brought in three or four bands, and Lemonheads were one of them. Huh. Okay. Up at Nautica. So here's a song that, that, that no cover will ever surpass. Okay, Mrs. Robinson is about as classic late 60s as you can get. It was written for one of the quintessential movies of the era by one of the quintessential artists of the uh, decade with references to 60s pop culture. I mean, this song is the 60s, mm-hmm. right? Uh, director for the film, um, for um, The Graduate, Mike Nichols, uh, had recently become obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel. When he asked him to write the original music for the film, the band actually hesitated because they didn't want to sell out. Right. You know, they kind of had this folk rock thing going where they were popular, but they also kind of had some from folk cred, right? But they really, really liked the script. 
they'd already been working on a song called, ready for this? This is Roosevelt. About huh. Eleanor Roosevelt. I did not know that. Okay. Okay. So when Mike Nichols said, do you have anything that would, that would work here? And Paul thought, well, I could just change Robinson or Roosevelt to Robinson because it works. And now the lyrics make a whole lot of sense. Listen to the lyrics, but put Mrs. Roosevelt in there. It's all about Eleanor Roosevelt. They didn't change the rest of the lyrics. Nothing in the lyrics have anything to do with the movie. I'm, I'm going through the song in my head, and yeah, it makes a hell of a lot more sense now. Um, it's, a, it's a tribute to the First Lady um, during the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, the song was Simon and Garfunkel's second number one, and it has the distinction of being the very first rock song to win the Grammy for Record of the Year. Hmm. At this time in the 60s, Record of the Year is still going to like, you know, jazz numbers or Broadway numbers or, you know, just the Grammys was really snobby back then. Oh, I think yeah. it's too much the other way now. I, I think they're too... Now they're too art, Too artsy. popular. Yeah, um, yeah. There needs to be, you know, the, the Oscars are still artsy. Right. But the Grammys now have just become the American Music Awards, you know. And anyway, yeah. that's just my opinion. Nah, you're right. Um, I do like what uh, what some other, other artists have done with the, the song. Um, I like the Lemonheads. And they recorded that in 1982 as a, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the movie on home video. So they were re-releasing The Graduate on, on VHS in 92, or probably on DVD at that point. And um, yeah, so they recorded it for some exposure. But here's the thing. Frontman Evan Dando later said that not only does he hate the song, but he also is not a fan of Paul Simon either. And so he really didn't want to do it. And, they, of course, they had to play it on tour because they were trying to promote the movie and everything per the agreement. Um, but he just didn't dig it. And you know what? Paul Simon didn't like the cover. Neither do I. <laughs> now, Art Garfunkel, yeah. and this is so Art Garfunkel, he, he thought it wasn't too bad. He really thought he, he like, kind of uh-huh. liked it. Um, but when Scorsese used it in Wolf of Wall Street, the, the uh, Lemonheads version, right. Uh, Evan w- was a little happier with, with the royalty check that he received. I would imagine. From that. Yeah. So to me, this is a lot like uh, Ring of Fire. Um, I like it for the same reasons, but it sounds like you don't. No. I, um, well, first of all, I've never heard a Simon and Garfunkel cover that I have liked. And I think it's partially because... Not what, even the Bengals? Oh, okay. Ah, no. gotcha. You got, on that you got me on that gotcha. one. Yeah, Hazy Shade. Yeah, no. Okay, yeah, I, res- right. I rescind what I just said. <laughs> um, I do love the Bengals version of Hazy Shade of Winter. Um, but the problem, but what the Bengals get right, though, is the harmony. That's the problem. Every other Simon and Garfunkel cover that I've heard, I mean, what makes Simon and Garfunkel Simon and Garfunkel is that two-part harmony. Mm-hmm. And when you lose that, the lyrics are still powerful. I mean, it's Paul Simon. The man can write a song. But when you when you take away the harmony, you take away the heart of the song. When I listen to the Lemonheads version, it's just empty to me. I mean, I don't feel, and knowing that he dislikes the song and dislikes the duo, it makes more sense now. Because when I hear him sing it, I hear disdain. You know, I just do. I've always. But that's kind of that was kind of a grunge thing. I I get that. Too cool. It was not cool to care. I get that, but it's it's to me Simon and Garfunkel are they're they're above all that. I almost hold them in a sacred place because I I just I grew up you know 
they, they they just they were always playing in in the home. I mean, my parents my parents didn't agree on a whole lot of music, but they agreed they agreed on Simon and Garfunkel. So we, we I heard it all the time and grew up. And Paul may not be one of our uncles, but oh, he, but he's a cousin. He's really close. Yeah, yeah he's a cousin. He's an you know? cousin. Uh, so it's like I'm you know I get really protective of Simon and Garfunkel's music, and it's just I've never cared for the Lemonheads version of this song at all. See, here's what I like about it, and and later on this would become some of a trend. Um, taking a song and, and, and re-genrifying it um, with a completely different tempo. Now, Mrs. Robinson, the original, is more of an upbeat song. But, right. But this one, um, I like it because of the disdain. I like it because of the lack of emotion. Um, I like it because it kind of represents how I think a lot of 90 art, 90s artists looked at the 60s. Mm. Um, it's a great melody, and the song, I think, works really well fast. And yeah, they're not reinventing anything here. But to me, it's just a fun, another really good kind of song to crank on a road trip. Hmm. Um, because sometimes you hear a song over and over again. So many times. You love the song, right? There are a lot of songs where I just listen to live versions of it now because I'm so sick of the actual arrangement on the studio version. Yeah. And I think that's why when you become a fan of, like if you're not a fan of the band, you usually don't like the live album because it doesn't sound like the studio. But um, when you really get into a band and you've heard the original so much, you're looking for those live albums because you want to hear the same songs, right? But with a different arrangement or a slightly different tempo. Right. And so that's what I like about this. Now, you start to see this a lot more and more, especially with indie artists now, will take a song like Baby Hit Me One More Time and they'll do a really slow indie version of it, right. you know, stuff like that. Uh, wait, I think until, wait until we get to part two. Right, yeah. right. That's, <laughs> right. There's a lot of that. Um, to me, this is the beginning of that, sort of, right? Taking these these older songs and just... I don't know, to making them more generational than anything else. Which I see, but you know, when when I think about you know the, the indie music that you're you're referencing, and when I think about just part two, when we get to you know the Gen X covers on the other end, those songs are all done in reverence. They're all done, you know, they're chosen by the artist because they love the song or they sure. they, yeah, they, they love yeah. the artist. You know, the, the Lemonheads still are antithetical to that. It, it's just, I don't know. It's just. Well, Martin Scorsese liked it because he put it in Wolf of Wall Street. Well, I am so not, not, not going to argue with one of the great directors <laughs> of our time. So, and not only a great director, but great director where music means a whole lot to his films. Very like he, true. Yeah. It's very important uh, yeah. the music in his movies. No, I can see what you're saying, too. Um, I just Maybe that's just maybe it's more about just the melody, just such a great melody, and to hear it in a, in a different way because I'd heard it as... You know, by Simon and Garfield for so long. Right. It, it's kind of like the live thing. Like now, I can enjoy the song I like a lot, but I can enjoy it in a, in a different genre. I can enjoy it with with an even faster yeah. tempo. Uh, do you know that the the they literally like I think it was like, like you had to get this done quickly. Not only do they not change the verses, so they don't make sense at all in 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 the sense of the of the movie, make perfect sense now that we know it's Eleanor Roosevelt. But they didn't even finish the lyrics. The the d d d d d those were placeholders. Yeah, that, yeah. that was those were placeholders that they never wrote lyrics for. That happens in so many songs, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, think of Bill Withers' "Ain't No Sunshine." Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know, I know is like that. That's two verses of the song that he didn't finish writing. I um, in Susudio. Yeah. yeah. That's that's why there's a girl named Susudio of all things. But I um, yeah. No, it, it's just I don't know. I, it, this one just doesn't do it for me. But I. I I agree with you on everything, on all other counts, though. I love, for, for me, here's the thing. If you're going to do a cover today, okay, today's artist, if you're going to do a cover, you need to change it and make it your own. Mm -hmm. Because everything, especially 
you know, not only our music, you know, Gen X, but everything that came before, without question, it's all been done before. Right. So if you're going to cover a song, I want to hear that song presented in a way that is so different that you make it your own. And the Lemonheads not only, I mean, they speed it up, mm-hmm. right, I'll, I'll give you that. Distorted guitars, it's just, yeah. vocal delivery. Right, but it's just, it's not, it's still so, I don't know, it, it's, it's not different enough for me to overcompensate for the attitude that I get when listening to it, if that makes sense. But I think sense. the attitude is what makes the song. Because, okay. it's, because it's devoid of, like you say, um, any real appreciation for the original material, that's, that's such a Gen X thing. It, well, yeah. But, but here's the whatever, thing. Whatever. But the Who second cares? part is the fact sure. that they did the song, right? If they hated it that much, they didn't have to do the song. So it's a little disingenuous to say you hated the song and the artist and yet you still covered. Now, granted, it was financial and the record company and all that stuff, but they, they still didn't have to do it. So that's why I love, that's so Gen X. It's like, yeah, we'll do it, but we're not gonna like it. Fair we'll point. be a part of this, yeah. but we don't really wanna be here. We know how to play by the rules because society says so, but we're not gonna like it. And that's what this version of the song is to me. Well said. There you go. Yeah, no, fair point, I can't argue that. <laughs> Cannot argue it. All right, what's your next one? All right, well, my next one. Um, to me, this is one of the great covers of all time. Um, I went with Bonnie Rayet's Runaway comes from the Sweet Forgiveness album in 1977. Did not hit the top 40. It peaked at number 57. And she's covering the original version by Del Shannon, which was released in 61, and he took it, of course, to the number one spot. First of all, I don't know what it is about Bonnie Rayet, but when she picks up the guitar, I, I love everything this woman does. I mean, she is just, I've never seen her live. I want to. I had a chance this summer and did not buy tickets. Um, and I still don't know why. I'm kind of kicking myself for that. I've always wanted to see her live. Bonnie Rayet to me is just, she is just incredible. I mean, her, what she does on the guitar, her slide uh, is just, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. It just moves me. Every, everything I've heard her perform, 
even from you know the most obscure the tracks that she says are throwaway you know numbers I just I, I love everything Bonnie Rayet does and the thing about Bonnie Rayet everybody loves a redemption story and that is certainly the case for her uh, the short version of Bonnie Rayet's goes something like this critically acclaimed musician falls prey to the fast living hard drinking rock and roll cliche after nearly washing up she dries out then Deus Ex Machina, I mean, she makes a, a blockbuster comeback uh, album and, and walks away with a, a truckload of Grammy Awards, right? The problem is these kinds of narratives are twofold. First, they're not that simple or correct. And second, they, they discount everything that came before. It's as though the artist had to renounce anything associated with their dark night of the soul to be rewarded with a lucrative career revival. Um, Ray, it's salvation, of course, came with 1989's Nick of Time. Uh, which would produce three hit singles, win three Grammy Awards, go platinum five times over. In time, uh, Rayet was honored with a with a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the Icon Award from Billboard's Women in Music. She was inducted into the Rock Hall in 2000. Nick of Time may have been the start of a brilliant second act, but it wouldn't have been possible without the groundwork laid by Rayet's early records. And among them is this superb Sweet Forgiveness. That album is... If you don't know Sweet Forgiveness by Bonnie Ray, it is one of those albums that I feel is, is essential. It is an essential recording of the 1970s. By 1976, Rayet had made five albums in as many years with Warner Brothers, who offered her a record deal at age 21. And before signing with Warner Brothers, she apprenticed herself to surviving blues greats like Mississippi Fred McDowell and Sippy Wallace, while still enrolled at Radcliffe in the late 60s. The albums established her as a devotee of traditional blues, folk, R&B, rock, and an inventive interpreter of other people's songs. Her distinctive slide playing made Ray the guitar slinger to, to be reckoned with, one who was competent and comfortable in any genre. And over the course of these early albums, Ray's esoteric tastes, I mean, they, they, they amalgamated into a style wholly her own. On 1974 Streetlights, Producer and Hit Factory founder Jerry Ragaboy, he, he favored a sound that was less back porch blues and more uptown R&B. It was the first album not to feature Ray on slide guitar. It was a hallmark of her sound from the beginning, and, and he dropped it. Even though Streetlights yielded what would become one of her signature songs, uh, the, the John Prine penned Angel from Montgomery, widespread radio success eluded her. And pre-internet, a hit single was a prerequisite to, to mainstream recognition. Nevertheless, Ray had persisted, building a fan base through steady touring and regular play on progressive FM stations. She recruited Paul Rothschild to produce her fifth LP, 1975's Home Plate. The album mixes grittier blues numbers with heart-rending ballads by the likes of J.D. Souther and Eric Cause, two songwriters Ray would return to on subsequent releases. And recorded with the first full band she assembled, Home Plate slid into number 43 on the Billboard Pop Albums chart. However, a hit single remained out of reach. So after Home Plate, the stage was set for a breakthrough at last. When it came time to record Sweet Forgiveness, Ray had again tapped Rothschild to produce and entered the studio with, with the same players. And the song selections included tracks from favorite writers Cause, Jackson Brown, Carla Bonoff, but it was her cover of Del Shannon's Runaway that, that made people stand up and pay attention. There is a video that's been preserved uh, from Midnight Special where she performs Runaway in mm. 1977. And just the looks on the faces of the people in that crowd, they, they're just, they're, they're hypnotized by her performance. I mean, Rayet's recording of Runaway, her, her voice was throatier here, and she sang in a lower register. 
That was by design. She never liked how she sounded. She began smoking and drinking deliberately, trying to get her voice gravelly and, <laughs> o- and older. Uh, very much a Nat King Cole in that, in sure, that respect. Sure. Um, and her driving sludgy guitar work makes Shannon's original sound more like a throwaway than a runaway, you know? Norton Buffalo, inexplicably uncredited on the album cover, contributes this harmonica solo for the record books that is at once ecstatic and profane. It's just, I, I can't even put into words. Seeing the solo performed live with Buffalo, definitely swapping different harps throughout. I mean, it's just, it, it's, for me, it, it's, it's wondrous. I, I, you know, it's magical. So that live performance from the 1977 Midnight Special appearance on YouTube, folks, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta watch it. It's just, it's one of the great performances in, in rock history. I, I stand by that. Runaway came within spitting distance of the top 40, but it failed to crack it, peaking at 57. Still, it was Ray's first bona fide hit single, and the radio play brought more fans to the fold. As she told Rolling Stone in 2004, it was certainly the closest she'd ever gotten to a hit record. But it was the first time the national press put her on the map, and she got on the cover of Rolling Stone. She said that was a big deal to her at age 27. It was great to get some radio play. But a follow-up hit didn't materialize. And Ray, it was always more of an album-oriented or artist anyway, preferring the, the long haul over transitory f- fame. So her subsequent two albums, um, you know, they garnered her her first Grammy nomination, but the Academy's endorsement didn't seem to be enough for Warner Brothers, who dropped her from the, their label in 83. So then... You know, those looking for a time-worn story of debauchery and hitting rock bottom, you're going to be disappointed. There was no come-to-Jesus moment that prompted Rayet to give up drinking. Rayet's mood to sobriety came in the form of another divine intervention, Prince. Hmm. After Warner Brothers uh, showed her the door, Prince got in touch in, nine, in 1986. Uh, he floated the idea of working together, and Rayet signing on to his label, Paisley Park. As she tells it, she just got heavy, and she wanted to lose some weight because she was going to work with Prince in the mid-80s. She said, you know, if, if we make a video together, I'd better drop some weight. I, I better look, you know, the part. So that is when she quit drinking. Um, nothing came of the Prince collaboration, though. By the time the two got their schedules lined up, Prince had already recorded some songs in the wrong key with lyrics that didn't really fit Rayet, who had already canceled her summer tour that year to work with him. But he forgot to let her know that he had extended his own summer tour and couldn't make it. That's Prince. That's Prince, yeah. So everything worked out in the end, though, which is an oversimplification, just like the rest of the story. Nick of Time may have been a new beginning, but so is Sweet Forgiveness in many ways. Its, its legacy lives on in Ray's affinity for blending muscular blues rock and potent ballads into a coherent and commercially successful whole. Um, listeners who only know Ray from Nick of Time and Luck of the Draw would do well to give Sweet Forgiveness a spin. The album has more in common with Ray's Break 1989 breakthrough than, than any hackneyed narrative would suggest, serving as a blueprint for her later success. Um, Sweet Forgiveness proves that, you know, there can be no second act without a hell of a first one. But as for Del Shannon, his original version, uh, Runaway topped the charts in 61. It was one of many songs Shannon wrote about broken relationships. He admitted that he wrote the words to Runaway about himself, actually, because he was forever running away from relationships. Um, in its first run, the B-side to Runaway was Jody. Shannon actually stated that Jody, not Runaway, was the favorite song that he had ever recorded. Uh, Shannon's career trailed off not long after Runaway hit the charts. 
He was a favorite of Tom Petty, though, and the latter pays tribute in the song Running Down a Dream. Uh, it was a beautiful day. Someone, the sun beat down. I had the radio on. I was driving. Trees went by. Me and Dell were singing a little runaway. I was flying. Um, one of my favorite Petty songs. Petty actually invited Shannon to join the Traveling Wilburys, but the singer took his life in 1990, and Roy Orbison was tagged at his, as his replacement. Uh, Shannon's Runaway may be a classic of the jukebox era, but it's Ray, it's funky blues-driven cover that I think bests the original in every possible way. So, Runaway is one of my favorite oldies of all time. Yeah. Yeah, love it. But I like her version, too. Oh, I love her version. Very good. And it's the only only step I took into the 70s. Because, um, oh, so many great covers from the 70s. And we, you know, Gen X, 70s, right. 80s, sure. 90s. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, Bonnie Ray was the only step backward. Everything else I, I have here is 80s or 90s. So, But I, I had to include it. I love her version. So Definitely. Cool. My last pick. Uh, this is one that had to be here. I, I think we should just give up our podcast if we didn't add this one. Um, talking about the song Hallelujah. Original Leonard, Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen classic. Again, you know, you don't mess too much with Leonard Cohen. Uh, but, um, I don't know, th- this one... This is at least equal, and you could make an argument that it's it's better. It's the better version, and I love Cohen, but yeah, but yeah. it's the better version. Yeah, um, came out in two thousand seven. It's Jeff Buckley, Tim Buckley's son, who unfortunately um, died tragically in a drowning accident um, right about the time he was starting to take off, and people were beginning to see the talent that this young man had. Because of his death, he would never know the amount of praise he'd receive when his record Grace was released just about a decade later. Um, so we're not talking like right after he died. It was still a decade of time until um, he became known in a, in a, in a larger sense. Um, the song, um, Hallelujah, his version of it went to number one on the Billboard Digital Downloads and then kind of became part of the, the canon of the decade. secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you well it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall and the major lift the baffled king composing Rufus Rainwright did a version of it, which I think is the one that's featured in Shrek. Yeah. Uh, People in American Idol began to start um, mm-hmm. using that song, so it, it kind of popped up everywhere. Right. Which is a little bit of a shame. I'm mean, glad that the, 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 everyone knows the song now. That's good. But it just, for a while there, kind of kind of got too much. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, it was everywhere. And then to go back and hear this original version now, you know, devoid of all that, shows how special it is. Um, the song was a critical darling of that year. It received accolades from music critics and musicians and listeners alike. Um, but like I say, that it diminished the power of the song when so many people wanted to get in on that. Now, almost 200 covers of the song were made before Buckley's version. 200. So this song was already um, recorded quite a bit. 
including some pretty solid ones. Here we go. This is the third time I've mentioned John Cale. I'll never mention <laughs> three times an episode again from Velvet Underground. Um, he had a really, really good version. In fact, his version, arrangement-wise, uh, Buckley's version is closer to John Cale's than it is to Leonard Cohen's. Yeah. Um, but Buckley's is just, it's it's special. Um, and why, again, it's hard to put into words. It's really interesting that we chose a podcast about music where we just talk about music instead of letting people just listen to it because everything from just the arrangement of the song, um, just how, 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 suddenly, how subtle and haunting it can be, um, his vocal, of course, um, and then just in light of his own tragedy, everything just comes together and makes this, this so special. Um, now, when Leonard Cohen died in 2016... His version finally cracked the Hot 100 in the charts, so that one found some commercial success too. But I don't know. I think, and I guess it's probably the death thing again. Anytime we talked about Cobain and Amy Winehouse and all these artists that you know we lost in their prime, they get canonized. Um, you know, you, you think of a, an alternate world. Not that Kurt and um, yeah Eddie Vedder are the same. I hate when people lump them the same just because they were the two most popular grunge bands, right? But I often wonder, had Kurt survived and Eddie Vedder passed away young, if Pearl Jam would have been canonized in the way that uh, oh, most Nirvana def- was, and Nirvana definitely. would have continued on and, and, and done their thing. So um, maybe that's part of the whole thing. But the fact that you had this immense talent and this, this artist um, that we lost before anyone really knew who he was, and just magic... Max, just his whole, his all of his stuff is very good. This album is a great. Grace is a solid album, but this track just captured everything in in one five minute take. No, I agree. Um, yeah, and and I love Cohen. I mean, he whew, one of the, he was a better poet than a singer, without question. Yeah. His, I think he's a great singer. Yeah, no, but he's very haunting. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's. That's by design. Right. And he has probably, I'll credit him with one of the greatest lines ever written. There's a crack in everything. That's yeah. how the light gets in. Yeah. You know, I love yeah. that line from Anthem. To me, that would that is Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. in a one-line, you know, definition. I mean, that, that's all of his music, you know, in its entirety. Um, but Buckley, there's, I mean, from the moment before he begins singing, when he, he lets out that exhalation of, of, you know, he takes it from takes a drag from the cigarette and then just that exhale, that long exhale. It's, I don't know, he brings you into the song in a way that Cohen can't. Right. Cohen, because of how he delivers his music, he remains distant from the listener. Sure. You know, there's, you can can self-identify, you can find the personal connection, you can have an emotional response, but you can't be a part of the lyrics when Cohen is singing. Buckley draws you in and I mean, it's, it, it just, it envelops you, you know? Cohen's version is a little more, um, well, how do I say it? It's, um, I don't want to say aggressive. That's not the right term, but it's a little more, there's a little more anger. Oh Cohen, yeah. There's, there's anger in Cohen's version. Buckley is, it, it's, it's a whole different emotion. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's the biggest difference, right? Yeah. Um, Buckley's uh, is, is very, um, God, help me out here. Um, it's it's more. I want to say divine, but uh, um, it's more retrospective or int- introspective. I mean, it, it's more. Um, it's comforting. Yeah, I and mean, it's 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 like a. It's an olive branch. It, it's like a. It, it kind of. I don't know, it's like I said. It envelops you. I mean, it just. It it kind of runs through you. To me, it, it's it's almost spiritual. Yeah. Well, that's um, what I was going to say. What's <laughs> 
I always I can't think of the term now. When something is um, sacred and somebody desecrates it, they say it's what um, blasphemous. Not quite. Not quite. Um, um, oh, not irrelevant. What am I thinking of here? Um, uh, um, <laughs> the, blas- the whole podcast has turned to blasphemous. Reverent, reverent. 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 That's what I'm trying to say. Um, okay. it, it, it's reverent. It's a reverent song. How did you get that? Okay, because the, what you threw at me was. Um, it's something holy that someone desecrates. That's, yeah, irrever- irreverent. Irreverent, okay. I'm doing the opposite of that. Got, okay, that's what was confusing. He found a song <laughs> and he made it more reverent. Mostly, mostly it's the opposite, right? Someone takes something sacred. Gotcha. That's what art is. They break it down, you know, and someone says, oh, that, that's irreverent. That's not appropriate. He, he adds reverence to it. That's what I was trying to say. Gotcha. Now it makes sense. I, I wasn't following the, okay. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, that's basically it. I mean, he, he just... There's just something very almost. There's almost a purity to yes to his version. Yes, um, and you're right. Cohen, all of Cohen's songs are delivered with angst, mm-hmm. and he, which um, I think that was just his. He was a cynic. Yeah, you know, um, the son of a rabbi um, who just you know looked around and, and found that you know. He he lost faith. I mean, Cohen lost faith in mankind, but he still believed that there was a promise for things to get better, and and that's what you find in his music and his delivery. I mean, most of his songs are about people having, you know, lost faith or people having taken advantage of those naive enough to sure. still have it, sure. and and you know, I mean, that's not the delivery of of Buckley. Buckley is. It's more of a... It's, it's spiritual, like yeah, you said. It's, yeah, it's, it's just... I don't it's know. elevating. It's yeah. elevating to good, the listener. Good word. Elevating good word. to the listener. Why, why has this entire episode been a lesson in you know, language usage? I well, <laughs> don't know. Well, A, because again, trying to describe music seems right. like a, a futile thing. Uh, but also, we're all getting old, and words don't come to us like they used to. Well, in two weeks, I'm going to bring a thesaurus with me. Okay? <laughs> and we will, we will be at the ready for... Well, it's, it's just frustrating. To. It was, it, to me, I feel like, like, like an artist who um, you know, can't find his color sometimes. You know? Yeah. Like you know what, exactly what you want to paint, and, and you don't have the tools available. And that's, that's hard, harder for me. And I, I know everyone goes through this when they, when they get 50 plus, but right. um, it's difficult for me. Well, especially, I mean, you and I, and you especially in, you know, recent years are writers. So it's like when you can't find the words, that's just frustrating. But yeah. And when you're writing, you can, you can figure it out. Right. But, but when you're alive on a podcast, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no one wants to hear you try to figure out exactly what yeah. term you're trying to use. No, but you know, if they're tuning in, they're tuning in because they're music fans and yeah, they yeah. certainly understand the challenge of trying to describe something that moves you yeah. in a way that listeners who may not feel that can understand. Sure. So it's, sure. you know. At anytime you try to describe art instead of experiencing art is, right. is a challenge. Exactly. All right. Well, Our, your last one. My last one, which is as far removed, I mean, you want to talk complete opposites. This is about, you can't get any further from, you know, Leonard Cohen's uh, Hallelujah than this one. Uh, I give you in- Istanbul, not Constantinople, by They Might Be Giants. And it's full circle, because after I talked about putting on the Ritz, I said there's another song yep. that I thought sounded old-timely, and, but thought it was just They Might Be Giants, because the lyrics are so ridiculous. Yeah.
Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. TMBG, I mean, there, there's, of course, can be found on the the Flood album from 1990. I, I was at that tour. Peabody's really? in Cleveland. Oh, oh yeah, I great show. I would have loved to have seen it. The original version actually comes from the Four Lads in 1953. They took it to number 10, okay? So first of all, a history lesson, because why not? Named after <laughs> Constantine the Great, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire for 11 centuries. It was conquered by the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, in the 15th century, and its name was changed to Istanbul in 1930. And the first to sing about its history was the Four Lads. Okay, who knew, right? They Might Be Giant's biggest hit, Istanbul, not Constantinople, was a cover of one originally recorded by the Four Lads in 1953. It had to be a novelty song back then. Well, yeah, um, yeah, it was. Because it, 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 it was, yeah. It, it's, it's right along where They Might Be Giant's right mm -hmm. is and that's why it's so shocking to me that it was a cover yeah now I only found out that Istanbul was a cover maybe seven or eight years ago and it shocked the hell out of me I mean the song seemed so tailor made that I never would have guessed it was not right. They Might Be Giants original I just assumed that all tracks on the Hit Peppered Flood album were original recordings when I found out online that the song was first recorded by the Four Lads and that they took it to number 10 I, I kind of I I don't know, I, I kind of shuddered. Because their name alone, The Four Lads, and then 1953, right? I, I kept thinking post-big band, pre-rock and roll, bland, sterile, and sanitized pop for the masses, right? That's pretty much sums it up. Yeah, four guys, or rather lads, likely a barbershop quartet. I mean, this is what's going through my mind. But I'll tell you what, I was pleasantly surprised when my curiosity led me to YouTube. The original version is slower. The music is more orchestral. But there's not much difference between The Four Lads and yeah, no, I've heard it. I've heard TMBG. it. Is it on Spotify? Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, it'll be on the mentioned songs list. But here's the thing. I was pleasantly surprised, but I was also saddened. <laughs> I was saddened that there was not much difference between the two recordings. Yeah. You know, I felt cheated. I, I wondered to myself, you know, is this how the Gentiles feel when they learn Santa Claus is a fraud? You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, because in my mind, Istanbul was just, it was always such... I don't know. Quirky. It was yeah, quirky. It, 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 it was one of those songs in college that just, I, I don't know. I, I just identify my entire college experience through a handful of songs. And that's one of them that really just, it was a game changer for me. Not because it, it had any great meaning or significance, but it was just the right song at the right time. The thing about the Dame yeah. of Giants is though, it sounds nonsensical, most of their music, but there's always something oh, yeah. very concrete under the surface. Absolutely. Um, I just don't know what it is in this song. <laughs> in this song, I don't know that there is one. Yeah, probably you know? isn't. Um, the, the Four Lads original, it sounds like black and white episodes of I Dream a Genie. Mm, yeah. I, I can that, see that, yeah. That's kind of, you know, I, I don't mean that as a slight. I mean, the harmonies are phenomenal. It definitely sounds dated. I mean, the song's tricks. I mean, there's zany instrumentation. There's reliance on echo, which was very common with mono recordings. And, and the slow pacing, so as to be intelligible on AM radio, it's all rooted, you know, in the song in that era in which 
it was recorded. It's pre-Elvis. It's white people pop. But I also understood why they might be giants picked it up and ran with it, you know. Uh, TMBG members, John, John Flansburg and, and John Linnell, I mean, let's call them the two lads, right? They do update the arrangement. And then by performing the song up-tempo, they do have the better version. Um, Flansburg told Rolling Stone, this song I knew from my childhood, and we learned it simply to have more songs in our repertoire. It was in the show for a couple of years, and John and I would perform without the drum machine. It had a very spaced out middle section where we would basically yodel into <laughs> echo <laughs> effect, and, and it was all very, very trippy. He said it always got a good response, and when we got our fancy Casio FZ1 samplers, this track was one of the things we put together to test out. So, yeah, I do love TMBG, but in truth, I chose this one for our mixtape, not, not only because it's They Might Be Giants, and I, I love They Might Be Giants, but I, I really kind of chose this one so that I could put the original version on the Mention Songs playlist. Nice. I want people to hear the original version of this song. I'm curious to know what our listeners will think of the original version, because I I like it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't expect to like it, but I do, and... It, it, it does sadden me though a little bit because it, it kind of takes away from the, you know the, the quirk and the fun of, the the cover. But that is my number twelve. Cool. Well, I guess the only thing left to do here is to put them in an order that makes sense. Yeah, and we're we're we did really well because we're very uh, eclectic here, very varied. So we will have to see where that goes. All right, we'll be right back, and we're back. So. Here we go. A Gen X Covers Mixtape Part 1. And I already have the perfect title. Okay. Cover Me. Ah, nice. We're going to go the boss. How's that sound? Cool. All right. So, we start side A. Number one. First song, Istanbul, not Constantinople. We lead into Always Something There to Remind Me by Naked Eyes. Into Go West by the Pet Shop Boys. Followed by Take a Chance on Me by Erasure. I've said from the beginning those two songs are likely going to go together and they do. It, it works well. We're going to follow Erasure up with Mrs. Robinson by the Lemonheads into Cool Jerk by the Go-Go's, followed by Surfing Bird by the Ramones, Ring of Fire by Social Distortion, followed by Crimson and Clover by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, The Man Who Sold the World by Nirvana, followed by Runaway by Bonnie Rayet, and we end Side A with Love Hurts by Nazareth. Side B, we begin with I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. That goes into the Fugees, Killing Me Softly with his song, followed by Walk This Way, featuring Aerosmith by Run DMC. Then I Can't Get No Satisfaction by Devo, followed by I Got My Mind Set on You by George Harrison. Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody by David Lee Roth, followed by Putting on the Ritz by Taco. Then Sea of Love by The Honey Drippers. Red Red Wine by UB40, followed by Sweet Jane by The Cowboy Junkies. Gloria in Excelsis Deo by Patti Smith, and we end our mixtape with Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. I just love how those last two fit perfectly together. Yeah, they do. So that, folks, is part one of our Gen X Covers mixtapes. We went a little long this time. We did. (laughs) Um, About a half an hour, well, 45 minutes longer than normal. It's all right. Yeah, hey. People can pause and turn yeah. it off if they don't like it. They can listen in segments. They can come back later. Um, they can skip it if they want to. Um, but wow, when we are back in two weeks, uh, next month, part two is an entirely different mixtape. Yes. Uh, I'm really excited about that one. Um, there are a lot of very 
good indie versions. Well, they're not all indie, actually. That's, that's no. kind of unfair. Um, but there are a lot of millennials and Gen Zers who pay reverence to, there's that word, yeah. uh, who, who, who pay reverence to, to, the, you know, to the music we grew up with, and it's good. It's really good. So I'm excited to bring a lot of that music to our listening audience next week. Yeah, or, I'm looking forward uh, to Two it. weeks, rather. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. Should we let them go? I think so. We've, we've held them long enough. We've held them long enough. All right. Well, that's all for this time. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next time. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give him one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Turn the volume to nine There's a